This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their multivitamin elite, their whey protein, the super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chicago Fire Department legend and creator of the television show Chicago Fire, Steve Chikorotis. Now, in this incredibly powerful conversation, we discuss a host of topics from the mentors that shaped him in his early life, boxing, physical fitness in the fire service, some tragic career calls, the importance of training, grief, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast and therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Chief Steve Chikorotis. Enjoy. Well, Steve, I want to start by saying thank you so, so much for coming on Behind the Shield podcast. This is a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time now. Um, a lot's happened even since I first, you know, was was, was hoping to reach out to you. Um, but the universe always spits out the perfect time. And obviously that is this. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, James. Honored to be here. It's, uh, it's uh, I, I love your work and uh, I, I look forward to today. Beautiful. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? You're finding me in my hometown, the city of Chicago, uh, where it's a lot colder than it is where it's by you, you know, but uh, I've lived here my entire life uh, and spent 36 years on the Chicago Fire Department and continue to work in Chicago. Now I have grandkids here, so as much as I'd like to come and live in a warmer climate, be your next door neighbor, I'll, I'll, you'll always find me in Chicago. <laughs> Well, speaking of, of you know, the, the incredible career that you have, I would love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Yeah, I was born and raised in, in Chicago. Uh, had a father that was uh, a bricklayer, a good man, but, uh, but he played hard and, and uh, lived a fast and life and died uh, at the ripe old age of 45. You know, he... Uh, I never seen him without a drink or a cigarette in his mouth, and and it 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 took its toll. So I lost him as a, as a young child. Of course, it it affected my life. I had a great mother that uh, worked real hard to, to uh, provide for four children. I was number three of four. I had two older sisters and a younger brother, and uh, so uh, I had mom that was trying to take care of a family and working nights in a I guess you'd call it a factory for. Uh, a grocery store chain making pizzas. That's what she did at night to support us. And uh, we didn't know the difference. I mean, I, we all worked too. I, I worked in a gas station. Uh, I delivered papers, you know, from the time I was probably nine or 10 years old, 
worked in a gas station through high school, and I just thought that was life. And and looking back, I would I wouldn't change a change a thing. You know, I think sometimes what some people look at hardship, I think I think it kind of shapes and mold who we are. Now it's always interesting, and it's you know heartbreaking. So many people had tragedy. You know, the the, the parents of of guests that come on the show. When you look back now, because obviously you've got this career as a responder, you're, you're well immersed in, in the wellness elements and the mental health elements now. Have you any kind of idea of, of the environment that your father grew up that created that turmoil in his mind? Yeah, you, you know what? He, he had a great, uh, great set of parents and a, and a, a beautiful sister. Uh, his father was an immigrant from Greece. Uh, his mother was second generation here. And uh, uh, they provided for him, you know, it was a blue collar family. Uh, he was a rough and tumble guy from a, from a kid. And then World War II broke out. And I, I think probably me looking back, I think the stress and the trauma, and he never talked about it to me as a child. Later, I look at pictures and I see him with mutilated body parts, uh, some of his comrades and some of the enemy. So he saw an awful lot. And back then they knew nothing about, you know, post-traumatic stress. And it would, would be a weakness, a sign of weakness if you ever talked about it or said a poor me type thing. So that probably uh, affected things and, and probably drove him into the lifestyle that he had. See, I was naive when I first started this. We talked to a lot of the Vietnam era and, you know, it was blatantly obvious the 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 poor reception that they got when they came home and, and how that filtered into some of the mental health challenges and addiction. But I kind of romanticized through even Sebastian Junger's work. You know, you talk about the ticker tape parades and everything, and there was a difference. But you forget, I think, that they may, they may have had a reception, they may not. But either way, they kind of just went back home and got stuck in again. And now when you look back at multi-generational trauma, I believe that one of the origin stories is, is the World War II veteran coming home. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, they didn't know how to handle it. They and and they won and they came back victorious and they came back to celebrate. And uh again, it was just a sign of a weakness. It would have been a terrible sign of weakness if you complained about mental issues because of fighting the war. You're supposed to be this tough guy. And and even, Christ, even at my age, when I first came on the fire department, post-traumatic stress was not discussed. Uh, it, it wasn't dealt with. It was kind of just pushed under the rug and you pretended like you were okay. You know, I, I uh, when I started the fire department in the late 70s, I was actually broke in by World War II veterans, Korean veterans. The younger guys uh, had recently come back from Nam and, uh, you know, the Vietnam War had just ended. Uh, and uh, again, they just didn't know how to deal with it. So uh, we just pushed on and put on a tough guy image and and uh, forged forward. But we can't always do that. No, absolutely. I think there's a time and place. You know, in the middle of a structure fire is not the time to be thinking about kittens and rainbows, but right. <laughs> after you got to process it. Absolutely. So what about sports? I heard you talking to Jason Lisko, who's a friend of mine too, about boxing. So can you walk me through the sports you were doing as a young man? Yeah, I was an athlete. I was a, a smaller guy. You know, I, I, I uh, took some time to grow to this massive size of uh, 5'9", 190 that I am now, you know. 
so as a smaller guy, I was a, a, t- a tough little football player. I had good speed and uh, hit hard. I was uh, maybe looking back, I don't think I had anger issues, but maybe the the tough things I had at home, I was uh, a fighter. I wouldn't turn my back on a on a street fight if if you know someone pushed or was picking on someone. I was always the guy to get in the middle of it, not bragging about it. You know that's uh, just what happened. Uh, that that led into I had family members, including my father, had a boxing history, but again he didn't share too many stories with me. I had an uncle that had been a professional fighter, and what I liked, I, I played any sport you can name, you know, baseball, hockey, football. But uh, one that was great for me was boxing because you fought in your size range. And I fought at middleweight. And uh, I ended up with the, I I stumbled around with a few boxing coaches that were, you know, uh, that you could find in the park district. But I, I, I seen that when we had matches, there was one guy that everybody revered, this guy, Johnny Kulan. He had been a world champion. Uh, he was an old man when I, when I met him. He had been a world champion in the in the teens, in the nineteen teens. I don't know, maybe nineteen eighteen. Uh, for for like four to six years, he, he maintained the championship, a bantamweight championship, and he had a gym in the city of Chicago, in the roughest neighborhood of the city. Uh, I had to. Uh, it was harder to get into the gym than what you would face when you got there. You know, it was a heavy gang area, rough area. And, uh, but Johnny was worth it in this particular gym. I mean, even Muhammad Ali used to come in there and work out. These were the years when Muhammad was banned from boxing because he was uh, 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 turned down going to the Vietnam War, a conscientious objector, they called it. And he would come in there and he held Johnny Kulan on a pedestal. That's the the level of fighters that we had in there. Uh, other world champs that would come in, their names will hit me in a second. Sometimes I had opportunity to learn from them. Muhammad Ali always uh, treated me good. He would come in, crack me in the back of the head, call me kid, give me a big smile. And uh, I never had a chance to learn from him, but where he would spar with me because I was way below that. But uh, believe me, I would observe and I would learn from, from observation with him. But uh, that, that helped me get through my childhood and, and into my teens. And I uh, turned professional and we'll get into that probably a little later. I had uh, my wife and family kind of pushed me away from that, even though I was winning, I ended up, I quit at, at four and oh, but, but there's, there's not, there wouldn't have been much of a future in it for me. I certainly wouldn't be sitting here on a James Gearing podcast over my boxing career, you know, <laughs> uh, but it, it really helped me get through a point in my life. And Johnny Kulan, uh, if we talk about mentors later, he was one of the greatest mentors in my life and uh, really became like a second father. And there's things that he shared with me that I'd like to share with your audience that helped me, it still helps me every day of my life. I used one of the techniques I'm going to uh, tell you is about whenever we get to it. Uh, I, I used it just before this podcast, just to uh, uh, lose emotion and 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 gain focus. And that's 
what I do. That's what I would do in the roughest times of my life, like when tragedy hits your doorstep or in a fire service when there's a May Day and your world is spinning. I could use some of the techniques that I learned from this boxing coach into that world. And without a doubt, it's it's uh, helped save my life and make me who, who I am. Uh, do you want me to go on with the childhood type uh, yeah, well, let's let's. I mean, we'll, I'll go back to that in a second, but let's talk about the techniques because I know now sure. there's been an awakening again where we're talking about breath work. I had Wim Hof on the show. I mean, all, all these great minds. So, talk yeah. to me about you know all these these decades ago, what this you know World War One era boxing champion was teaching you. Yeah, he he was amazing. Like the three biggest things that that he shared with me, taught me, and and he he was an amazing character. You can look him up. You can Google Johnny Kulan. And he was as famous, as much as famous for for uh, nobody could pick him up. The world's strongest men could not pick up Johnny Kulan, who was probably maybe 130 pounds, if that. And this little guy, they would have to grab him by the waist with both hands by the waist, look him in the eye, and he would touch you very lightly behind your ear and touch your wrist, but not a pressure point. I, I, you know, I'm into martial arts. I know pressure points, no, no real pressure. It was like a distraction. You look them in the eye. I tried several times and, and James, you could turn around and grab that uh, corner of the door frame and try and pick up the room you're in. And you would have better luck than picking up Johnny Kulan. So he was on television shows, the biggest shows of the time, like uh, the Johnny Carson, Jack Parr, Merv Griffin type shows. And, and the Queen of England's bodyguards, uh, this guy Alexov, the world's strongest man from the Olympics, Russian weightlifter, uh, all of these people and many more. Muhammad Ali, I have pictures of Muhammad trying to pick him up in, in our gym. Uh, and nobody could budge him. And that's the power of his mind. But things that he taught us, one that I just used today, so I'll start there, is just controlling your breathing, diaphragm breathing, the military. Now, I never heard of it for years. I was using it forever. And then I started hearing box breathing from the military. Navy SEALs use it when they're going in on a mission. They're in the back of a bird going in on this dangerous mission. And they could be calm, cool, and collected and focused because they're box breathing. And it's simply, I do six seconds, but uh, I think the most common is four, taking a deep breath, like say four seconds, hold your breath for four seconds, exhale for four seconds, inhale for four, and, and repeat this this box. So it's like the four sides of the box is why they call it box breathing. But in a, let's start with a mayday situation. In, in maydays, in the fire service, a mayday for, for non-firefighters out there, which is probably most of the audience, uh, a, a mayday is when a firefighter's in trouble. Now, civilians are always in trouble. That's why we're there. That's why we have that occupation. And they're they're uh, less prepared. They they don't have fire gear. Someone dressed like, like James and I are right now with civilian clothes, even though we're tough firefighters, so to speak, we can survive only 300 degrees for a minute. A firefighter, which we're never going to leave behind, uh, with the fire gear and the SCBA and all the PPE, the positive, you know, the protection of equipment, uh, a firefighter can survive seconds. You know, maybe maybe you might get twenty seconds in a in an extreme flashover or a real dangerous situation. 
but we never leave them behind. Sometimes things are so bad where a building's collapsing around us and all the signs tell us that it's a thousand degrees at the floor level, we can write off a civilian and not in a not saying that we like to do that or that we do that often. In fact, we usually push forward and we'll let you know uh, God make that decision. Uh, but there there can be a time where we know that it's no longer a rescue for a civilian. It's just a recovery operation. And as a company officer and a chief at the levels that I rose to in the Chicago Fire Department, it would be shame on me if I lost firefighters for a recovery operation. But now when it's firefighter or firefighters trapped, and I've been, there's two parts of a mayday. You can either be the the victim or you can be the outside uh, uh, command, or actually the third part, you can, you can be part of the rescue team. The, the, we call it a rapid intervention team. And I've been in all three of those parts, and I'll tell you what instantly happens is your mind starts spinning, starts spinning out of control. Your thought process is all over the place. I've always had the ability, because of Johnny Kulan, to instantly reel it in and all I have to do is just initiate. I, I it, Once you do it for a while, and, and this same box breathing, if you want to call it that, is used in meditation. I also meditate every day to help purge my mind and focus my mind on my goals. Uh, it Once you do that, I start it, it, it just kicks in. Then I don't have to consciously think about it anymore, but I'm box breathing and everything slows down. And if I'm that victim inside that, has a chance of not making it home to my family, instantly I can see what I have to do. I got in there, I'm going to get out of there. If I'm the rescuers, I can start using good focus and logic as directing my team. If I'm outside running the incident, again, it's it's about controlling emotions. There's no emotion in this. This is about, uh, you know, tactics. I have to uh, uh, get everybody in the right place so that we can recover this victim. And I retired from a 36-year career working the busiest areas in Chicago as a firefighter, as a company officer, and as a, a chief officer at different levels. When I, when I retired, I had 30 firehouses. Uh, some of the district was the busiest in the city. Uh, but I never lost a firefighter when I was in command. I'm not saying that was all me. There, there was, believe me, I prayed to God every night for that because that would be the biggest nightmare but certainly maintaining control. And that's something that everybody that's listening to this has that ability and it can change your, 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 uh, your life. You know, how did I use it today? I'm, I'm about to talk to James Gehring, who I respect and I love his work. And uh, as, as much as I've, you know, done public speaking my whole life and teach classes around the country, sometimes out of the country, uh, do keynotes, I, I still get nervous. And that's a good sign. You still get butterflies. But you calm it down with a series of box breathing, it kicks in, and, and you, you get back that that focus. So that's one thing that Johnny taught us. And that's why he taught us so that we can control our emotion going into a fight and have focus. And you can really see things better in the, in the ring uh, rather than a wild street fighter that's just coming in you know, windmailing, you you have a plan and you know how to uh, defeat the other guy's tactics. Uh, other things that Johnny taught us that work for everybody, again, 
And I've also used my whole life. Uh, a real big one is positive visualization. You know, always ha having a, a good visual of what you want to accomplish and always in a positive aspect. Now, a, a real good example of that is when you watch, say, downhill skiing or gymnast, you know, other sports, it happens in the locker room. There it happens right at the edge of the mat or right at the top of the hill. And you'll see that downhill skier, they'll have their eyes shut and they're waiting for their time to get up to the gate. And you'll see their body bouncing and they're, they're, they're visualizing their entire race. They're hitting all the gates perfectly and just sticking that uh, finish line and setting a world record. And it always ends with the smile and a determined look. And then they move up to the starting gate. That's why they're Olympic athletes. Uh, positive visualization is so darn important in, in your in your life. It's things we should push to our kids. They, they have to see their future and they have to see it in a positive light. Uh, some people will argue why they're pessimists. They'll say, I'm a pessimist because with that outlook, I'm never disappointed. I always think the worst is going to happen. And if it turns out good, it's a nice surprise. Well, guess what? Most times it's not going to turn out good because we, we can influence that by, by staying positive. The old saying, you know, those who say they can and those that say they can't are usually both right. Uh, so staying positive, seeing your what you want to accomplish and then going out and doing it. That's uh, real. That uh, that works. And this last part is going to sound kind of like Star Wars, something Johnny taught us. Talk about a guy that was so far ahead of his time. It's a, a man that died in the in the 1970s. Uh, and he taught us how to control our mind. And he would call it shifting from lazy to go. And when it's go time, he didn't want you coming into the gym lazy. And he would shift us to go. And in the middle of fights and prior to fights, it's time to shift your mind, son. Time to shift your mind. And yet we had a way that we would do it. You think, you know, how can you do that? I mean, the brain is very complex. And uh, you could write down on a matchbook cover what Steve Chikorotis could explain about the brain. But I know that this part works. And and it's, it's basically Johnny never wanted to hear, uh, you know, how you feel. You know, Johnny, say in the middle of a fight, I, I come to the to the corner. And here's that familiar face and the trainer's giving me water and Johnny's pushing the water out of the way he wants to talk to me. And he's looking eye to eye. And uh, I would start to tell him how I feel. I'm fighting a tough guy, Johnny. The ribs are killing me. I don't give a damn about your ribs. What do you want? What do you want? Well, I want to drop this guy. How are you going to do it? And then he would, it, it's hard to talk in the middle of a fight where you're, you're kind of tired when you get in that corner. And uh, he would make you talk. And he would make you verbalize what you want to do. I'm going to drop this guy. How are you going to do it? Well, he's telegraphing that right. I can block it. I can slip in. And uh, he, you would do it. And, and most times it would work out exactly how you wanted. I, I used that same thing my whole career for promotional exams. I use all of these techniques for promotional exams. I, I think positively. I, I use my, my breathing technique to get myself ready for it. Uh, when you sit down, whether it's for writing, James, or studying, I'm sure you do the same thing. You uh, might be after a 10-hour day, and now you have some work to do on the computer, and your mind spinning. Writers, sometimes they have terms for it. They'll call it writer's block. 
All I have to do is do some box breathing, a couple sets of box breathing, and it brings that laser focus back. But this controlling your mind, how do we get off, uh, you know, get out of the lazy boy? We're watching the game and and to get our workout in or study for that upcoming promotional exam. And it's just understanding that we can shift our brain by thinking what we want. Forget about how you feel. I feel comfortable. I'm watching this game. You know, this is great. But I really want to get promoted and, and I'm competing against the sharpest Chicago firefighters in the you know, on the department for this chief position. So uh, then Johnny would, back then he would have us have a mantra. We would have a saying, he didn't call it a mantra, but it would be, uh, uh, it could be as simple as go get it. Some of them were not so clean. Some of them were a little uglier, but but uh, just go get it is something that I use to this day. If I it's time to get a workout in and I'm too comfortable, I, I think I, I, I want to stay in shape. Go get it. And boom, I'm up and headed in the right direction before I even know what what happened. So those are three magical things in my life that uh, helped me succeed a lot of my in a lot of the goals that I've accomplished. And uh, I believe saved my life and probably the lives of others. Well, it's interesting, yeah, that the origin of your experience with those came from, you know, so many decades ago. But when I started this and started talking to some of the, you know, the, the, the experts in the meditation world and the breathwork world, I had an epiphany like, wait a second, we're one of very, very few occupations where the only air on planet Earth that is accessible to us is strapped to our back. Why are we not talking about this so much more? I mean, I think the only breath conversation I remember from the academy was skip breathing, which in itself is a good tool. And I would use it, you know, I actually used it very, very well. But you talk about, you know, not only deregulating the nervous system and getting yourself down to that, um, you know, the, the, the mental state that you need to be, but also, especially in a Mayday situation, simply the air consumption element to it as well. And it's, I'm hoping that we'll see more of a, a shift to exactly what you've talked about right from day one in the academy. Yeah, absolutely. And skip breathing is another form of box breathing that so much so that it takes your mind off of uh, what you're doing. And and it uh, both of them help you conserve precious air that's on our back. It gives us that extra couple minutes that might might be the difference in your life or, or someone else's. Absolutely. Well, what about career aspirations? Were you thinking of the fire service specifically when you were in the high school age or is there something else in your mind? That's a good question. You know, I I knew nothing about the fire service. I, I hear most guys or a lot of guys, uh, uh, they drove fire trucks when they were little kids. And, and a lot of them grew up smelling the smoke. Daddy was a firefighter. Their uh, best friend's dad was a firefighter. I, di I didn't have that. And uh, back then, there was not firefighter television shows or movies. And the reason for that, the reason that there's always like uh, 9 million cop shows and very few fire shows is fire shows are much more expensive to uh, create, to make. Our special effects budget, our stunt budget is through the roof as compared to, uh, say, an exciting gun battle we can have in a police show. Uh, James, you and I could be running around that room behind you and have uh, squib hits and blank guns and uh, and we can have a reenact a real exciting scene for fire shows. It's it's a lot more. So with without that, 
I really knew nothing about the fire service. And uh, because I kind of came from nothing, we didn't have, and again, not poor me. I'm real happy with my life, but uh, I, I wanted to not have money problems. I didn't want to raise a family that had to worry about, are we going to lose the house? Are we going to be able to pay our bills? Uh, we going to be able to eat, you know, so so I, I wanted to make money. So I, I looked around and I would ask people that I seen that I could tell were successful or they gave that image that they were successful. And one particular guy was an architectural engineer. So I just told everyone I'm going to be an engineer. That's what I'm going to be. But uh, so I, I, I started and I started putting myself through college. I was uh, I, I started a roofing company to to pay bills once I was out of high school, uh, strictly to get myself through through college and also to to eat and, and you know have a place to live. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the physicality of roofing and the challenges of it. And I had my own company. I was an entrepreneur, if you will, and uh, in the winter time when roofing season in Chicago it's limited because of snow, like we have outside my window right now, uh, you would shift to something else. So so I see James looking out the window for people that can't see. He's looking at palm trees. <laughs> I am. I'm literally looking at palm trees. <laughs> I just read your mind, James. You were thinking of me, sucker. <laughs> but I'll be in Ohio next weekend, so I'll get my dose of snow then. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so uh, in the wintertime, I, I took a job as a draftsman working for architects. And I was good in in drafting at that time. It was all hand-drawn, but it, was, it wasn't fair that I did, really didn't give it a shake because I have a creative part of my brain that I wasn't able to use. I was just taking the, the plans from a, the rough plans from an architect and, and drawing it out nicely. You know, so I, I didn't like that. I didn't like being chained to a desk and, and it wasn't exciting me. So now I shift, I'm thinking I want an action job. So I don't know anything about the fire department. You know, you would see newscasts, usually like it seemed like in the wintertime, they would show uh, firefighters up here. You got ice in your mustache and, you know, hanging from your helmet. And that didn't really overly impress me. You know, I had a job where I could be cold outside too, but what I didn't see, and the reason why we didn't see it at that time, the real work that we do happens in zero visibility in 1300 degree temperatures, you know, so no cameras can follow us in there. So I didn't know. So I, I took the Chicago police test and I was waiting for results. And it was a beautiful summer day. And we were putting a roof on in the town of Bedford Park. It's a neighboring town of where I live right now. And, uh, it's small, uh, smaller suburban town, industrial town. They have uh, three fire stations, great, uh, great fire department there, I would find out. And uh, we're putting this roof on. It was the biggest job that I had ever sold in my life. So I was happy. I'm going to make good money on this job. And I had probably a crew of maybe 10 people on the roof and, and a guy on the ground. Uh, in the middle of the day, there's this explosion a tremendous explosion that like almost knocked us off our feet and, and black smoke starts coming up the stacks. Uh, 
right away, I'm thinking on the ground, I have a propane, 100 pound propane tanks and a, and a tar kettle. I run to the edge of the roof and my ground guy is looking up at me with his hands up like uh, he didn't know what it was either. And while I'm standing there looking at him and the other guys are coming to gather over my shoulder on that edge of the roof, the door flies open there and and it's been so many years, but it was approximately 50 people come sprinting out of this factory, office workers, factory workers, all running literally like their asses on fire because uh, at least one person died from the explosion. So they were rattled. They, they might still be running, you know, so... Uh, uh, as we're standing there like idiots looking down at him, this young office girl, probably about my age at the time, she stops to kick off her high heels so she can run faster. And she looks up, locks eyes with me and yells, run, get off of there. So I tell my guys, we got to go. So we slide the ladder and and I took my guys and we we probably went, uh, I don't know, across the street. We We went maybe a half a block away. And I was mostly worried at that time, how am I going to get my truck out of there? My my tar kettle, is that fire going to spread to that? Which it didn't. But uh, but there was multiple explosions. We're standing there and the smoke is getting worse and you could see the fire breathing. And then in the distance, I, I can still hear it like today. In the distance, I hear the sirens coming. And then they get closer and I can see the lights flashing and these Bedford Park firefighters, these uh, this noble breed of men that I, I had never seen before, they gear up, grab their lines, and and disappear into the smoke. And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, these guys are running into what I just ran away from. I, I want that job. Now I lived in Chicago at the time, and we have you know one of the one of the greatest fire departments in the world, but. I, I and Bedford Park is great too. Not knocking them at all, but I knew so little about it. I think I want to talk to the guys that put out this fire. So that night, now probably the last thing they wanted was a visitor when they finally came home from this massive fire. But in comes this young kid, about twenty years old, and I want to talk to him. Uh, and and the main thing I remember, James, is just how damn nice they were. They, they treated me like I was their younger brother or their son. They were all older than me. And they welcomed me in, tried to give me food. They uh, I, I sat there and drank coffee with them. And I asked them questions. They asked me questions. They were inspirational. Uh, when I asked them, I said, how do I get your job? Do you guys test? Do you have a test coming up? And they said, well, we don't. But Chicago does. Chicago has a test coming up in a, in a couple months. So I, I go and I sign up for the Chicago test and you find out what it was. And it was uh, mostly based on uh, physical, uh, uh, a series of physical tests and obstacle courses and some things that I was not familiar with, but some things I was very good at because of being a roofer, I was great on ladders and stuff. So uh, I started working out for this test and 30,000 people take the Chicago Fire Department test pretty much every time it's offered. And uh, I ended up number 31 on this test. So uh, so while I was in the fire academy, now I get hired and that's the first time I was ever in a fire building was the fire academy. And I'm undergoing training. And when I got home one night, I had a call waiting for me. I had uh, to return and the Chicago police department were offering me a job, 
But by that time, I was already hooked. You know, it was too late. So that's how I got into the fire service, almost almost by accident. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I've got a similar thing as you. I mean, I, I wanted to be a fireman when I was young. was told, very long story, very short, that I was colorblind in school, which is wrong. I'm color deficient, but it took it off the table for years. And so when I went back in to a completely different country, I had no understanding of what it was. So it was kind of exciting because you get the guys that have you know really been immersed into it. Maybe they volunteer, maybe they're legacy firefighters. And that's one exciting road, but it's almost as if not more exciting to walk into a profession that you have no idea what you're doing. And then as the pages start turning, you're like, wow, this is, this is amazing. I get to do this stuff and get paid. So yeah, phenomenal. And then, you know, then we get through the academy and academy was challenging, which I loved. I always loved a good challenge. And, and because I was with all other people at the top of the list, there were other people with similar athletic backgrounds and, of all races, uh, at that time it was all men, but uh, because they had only one standard on the physical test. And uh, again, I, they, I don't think the fire service knew better at that time, but but a great group of people. I enjoyed getting beat up in the academy and the, the push, and I couldn't wait for the first day of work, a, a real work. So after like four months, at that time, now it's like a six-month uh, academy class. After four months, it's winter time, and it's my first day in the firehouse. And we start the shift at eight o'clock, and they tell you to get there by seven o'clock. I was there like five o'clock. You know, I, I just couldn't wait to to get to work, so I was excited. Uh, I'm on a busy engine company on the southeast side of, of uh, Chicago. And I'm meeting these great people and working, and I'm, um, I had this nervous energy going. I just couldn't wait to to get the first job, and I didn't have to wait long. It was only a couple hours in. I don't know, two hours, four hours, somewhere in that range. It was before lunch that uh, the bells ring, and I'm on the back step of a fire engine, and we're standing next to one of the old salts, and we're we're riding, and and uh, he looks up in the distance and says. Uh, got a header. And he's talking like he's ordering from a drive-up window. You know, he's all calm and excited about it a little bit too. And I'm looking now, I'm really pumped. I see this black header smoke moving up into the sky in the distance. And we get there, we're first engine, first company. And it's a two and a half story frame structure. And the officer sends me with the senior guy that I was on the back step with to get a hose line. It had started in the basement and spread up throughout the whole structure. So we get a hose line to get down into the basement. And, uh, you know, I found basement fires are pretty tough. When you start out at the top of the stairs, you're at the top of a chimney because heat wants to come up. And uh, you, you think there's no way you can make it down the stairs, but you push yourself. And when you finally make the floor, it's a little more livable. But I was so excited. I was just uh, following the lead guy. And uh, he told me, stay on my ass, kid. Every time I stop, I want you to bump into my ass. And I'm right behind him. And I'm pulling hose line. And I'm excited. And we're knocking down fire and pushing towards the front of the basement. And somewhere around mid-ship of this basement, I crawled upon something. I'm sweeping out with my arm. And I feel this child's arm, a young child, a toddler's arm. He's about five years old and whatever you would call that age. And uh, uh, 
this kid turned out to be one of the biggest heroes I'd probably ever see in my entire life. He he had his arms spread out. He's shielding his two or three-year-old sister, and they're both dead. They're burned up badly, but he's frozen in that hero position, shielding his baby sister on, on the floor of this basement. Uh, they were left home alone. Mom showed up drunk two hours later while we're still overhauling. And uh, so these kids, you know, once it was established that there is nothing we could do for them, we had to push past, put out the fire, and then regroup. I mean, it was, they were, it was not debatable that they were dead. They were badly, badly burned. They were, they were gone. Uh, so then I, I, uh, being the youngest guy, they had me put them in the body bag. In fact, I put both of them in one body bag and zipping it up. And it was very emotional. It's the first time I had ever done anything like that. And I'm looking around at the other firefighters and they're showing very little emotion. I'm sure everybody was feeling it. And that's that tough guy syndrome we talked about. You know, it's too weak to to show. So I kind of did the same thing. I pretended like it hardly bothered me. I don't know if I was uh, that good of an actor, but uh, I'm saying prayers as I put them in the body bag and I, you know, get them out to the ambulance if they can be taken or paddy wagon so they can get taken to the morgue. Uh, so that's the way I started my career. That was the first job out of the gates. And and later that night, that evening, we would have another death. And this was a young team, but uh, it wasn't as bad to me because he was a gangbanger and, and he took second place in a gunfight, you know. So in the morning, I'm driving home and, and it, it, all this stuff is going, this whirlwind is going through my head, you know. Uh, it, it, and the questions that come to me, I remember it like it was this morning. The question I had in my head is, is this going to change you? This is crazy stuff. And uh, I mean, that same fire where we lost the kids later, I'm overhauling on the second floor and a chimney falls down right in between me and another guy. And uh, and the other guy just acted like it was Tuesday. Had we been over uh, like two feet, it would have killed somebody. But it was just it was just part of the job. And part of that, I, you know, I loved, but this reality part of the pain, and I'm always an empathetic person. I, I shouldn't admit this on, uh, you know, a, a show like yours, but I can have watery eyes reading a, a newspaper article. You know, I feel for other people's pain. I think uh, most firefighters really do. I think that's what makes us good. But uh, I'm driving home that next day, and I'm thinking, is this going to change me? And, and the answer is yes, it's going to change you. But I, I think we have some control. I think we have a lot of control, and maybe it's the stuff that Johnny Kulan helped me with, with controlling the brain. But I made a, a real clear decision that it's it's going to affect me, but not my family. You know, I didn't have kids at the time. Uh, I had just gotten married. I wasn't going to go home and share that story and bring pain to her, right or wrong. You know, I, I know a lot of people that come home and they – it's probably very therapeutic to talk with your mate over things like that. And I, uh, I never did. I wasn't that guy. Uh, so I said, it's going to change me, but it's going to change me for the better. I'm going to keep it to myself, but I'm going to work hard. I'm going to work harder than ever. Uh, I'm going to train and drill and work out so that maybe I can prevent some of these things from happening in the future. I, know, I realize how it's a, a game of inches. 
had we been called minutes sooner, we probably would have been able to save those kids. And then I've seen it a million times over my career. And sometimes the people that are dying are your fellow brothers your, or sisters, you know, firefighters. But uh, but it doesn't have to change us for the worse. It, it can it can actually make us a better person. I think it made me love more, probably uh, certainly made me more empathetic, this job. Uh, and uh, did we have to deal with a lot of pain? You, you, you do. And, and you learn different ways of doing it. I use meditation. I uh, talk it out with my friends uh, as as I would be protecting other firefighters that I could see going through a similar thing. Didn't realize it, but I was protecting myself at the same time because that's what therapy is. You're talking it out and you're taking it from in here and putting it out. You know, uh, a propane cylinder on a, on a barbecue grill would blow up just sitting in your backyard right now if there wasn't a blow off valve. And we have a blow off valve and it's right right here. We can relieve that pressure by verbalizing to, to people that we love and care about and that care about us. And that could be your brothers and sisters of the job. Well, one thing that you talked about, and it was interesting that you had this epiphany on your first shift ever. I mean, that's a horrible, horrible thing to have to you know go through on the very first day. But I don't think there is a right day to get it either. But yeah, the the kind of philosophy that it's yeah it's going to change me. I think this is something that people struggle with in this whole mental convers- mental health conversation too. Is you've you realize that you have, you know, some issues that you're trying to deal with and then you start working through it. Maybe you're doing, you know, meditation and, and equine therapy and you've done, you know, psilocybin or whatever it is, whatever tool you got in your toolbox that you felt worked. But I think one of the problems is that I hear people say, I'm just trying to go back to the old me. And you can never go back to the old me because how can you have seen, I mean, just what you saw in one shift is probably more than most humans will see in an entire lifespan. And we see that day in, day out. I mean, I, I only worked for 14 years, but, you know, definitely have a Rolodex of trauma that, you know, is seared into my mind. So that's the tricky thing is, and how do we figure out the healthy version of who we are now? Because you're not going to be the person before you saw all that trauma, before you missed sleep every third day or whatever your shift pattern was, you're going to be a different version, but you can still be a very healthy, resilient version of who you are now. You can. And, you know, things that other things that help me is physical workouts. I always feel better after a good workout. Uh, you know, uh, d- days like that really are not rare, as, as you know, for uh, non-firefighters wouldn't, but a day like I just described, for the most part, we call that Tuesday. You know, th- those days happen, and they happen often, and and we we purge through. Uh, we can't really just complain about it, like the poor me type thing. You know, I I, I used the the phrase in in classes. Uh, we we can't move next to an airport and then complain about airplane noises. You know, uh, it, you, you can't of thought that if I become a firefighter and medic, then I'm not going to see death and and destruction. I'm going to see terrible things. Yeah, I mean, everybody really knows that. Some people will act like they got caught off guard by it, but we know that's coming. But where the other part is, we don't know how we're going to handle it. And everybody handles it different. And it's not a sign of weakness if it hits you harder. It's a uh, 
uh, all of us have to feel secure enough that when we need help, need somebody to talk to, uh, we have to go get help. You know, I, 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 uh, I was able to purge through pretty good throughout my career. And I, I think the way that I did, I, I put it like I'm worried about my team members and we would have, uh, you know, now they would call it a, a critical incident stress debriefing. At that time, we just called it a chalk talk at the end of, you know, an incident, certainly if we lost a firefighter, but if we lost civilians and especially if we lost kids, I wouldn't let my firefighters go home without talking. And I didn't want anyone to feel guilt. I wanted them to realize that all we can do is our best. And in my early days as a lieutenant, I was I came up on a busy rescue squad. Some years we were the busiest company in the city of Chicago. We were on the west side of Chicago. And, uh, and then I became a lieutenant. I went on a truck company. And very shortly, I fought to get back on my old rescue squad. It was a heavy rescue squad. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a lieutenant. I had the greatest team in the world. Uh, I can throw names, but it wouldn't mean anything to people other than they mean everything to me. But uh, I have this great team, and we rode with six guys. So we have a multi-story apartment. I send two guys to the third floor. I take a guy with me to the to the second floor, and I have two guys going to the roof. So the uh, battalion chief, uh, I tell him we're taking two, and he says, "All right, give me a primary search on the second floor." So it's a two flat apart, three flat apartment. We start in the front in the living area and it was nighttime and we work our way through we hit a bedroom first bedroom we hit i'm sweeping on top of the bed and legs sweeping under the bed my partner's a guy named billy duffy he's checking the closet and and uh, sweeping the rest of the room clear clear we move down the hall hit the next bedroom and it was like a well-oiled machine really quickly we uh, searched the entire apartment, and we this is in very heavy conditions, you know, zero visibility, high heat, uh, fire uh, breaking into this apartment in the back. They're just coming up the rear porch with a hose line to hit the kitchen that we're in at this time, and I'm reporting to the battalion chief, you know, squad two to battalion uh, seven, uh, primary search complete negative. And he says, uh, all right, squad, give me a secondary search. Well, in our world, a secondary search, now the conditions are a little bit better. Uh, the fire's somewhat under control. The visibility might be slightly better. Ventilation, the roof and windows are are being vented as the fire's knocked down, so the smoke is lifting up. Uh, it was still pretty close to zero visibility. Maybe uh, uh, maybe it was zero, but but the conditions were better. So now we start searching, retracing our steps, from the kitchen to that third bedroom to the second bedroom. Now we're in that very first bedroom that we had got there within a minute of the time we entered the first door. And now I again sweep the top of this bed. Now I can make out a little bit the blankets and stuff. And I thoroughly search everything like you're looking for a smaller child, even though it was like a queen size bed. I check under the bed again, nothing. And now I grab this time, I grab the bed and I pulled it away from the wall and I pull it away from the wall and I hear thump. And it's making my neck hair stand up all these years later 
because I get under the bed and there was this little child, uh, I don't know, maybe a six-year-old, and I had similar age boy, even similar looks to this boy that I had pulled out from under the bed. And I race him out of the apartment. I'm doing mouth to mouth. He's not breathing. And, and and compressions as I'm running him down the block to an ambulance. And it was traumatic. And and I I I really blame myself. And that's the hardest part is when you cast blame on yourself. And uh it was painful. So I went through a period of time where, again, I didn't bring it home, didn't tell my wife, which you should, uh, didn't tell my coworkers. I'm a lieutenant of this busy squad company. Later, much later, when when I when it came to a head, people were telling me, yeah, it's good to see you back. You you weren't yourself or whatever it was. It was a, a couple months I was dealing with this, and I was waking up and going to sleep with visions of this kid in my head. And I was throwing these what ifs. What if I did this? What if I did this? Why didn't I pull that bed away from the wall the first time? You know, again, because it's a game of inches. And and uh, and if someone survives or not, maybe that extra five, six minutes that it took for me to get back, that might have been the difference with them. We'll never really know. But who I went to talk to after all of this dealing with this was my old captain. And I'll, I'll share you a couple stories about this great man. But I had this uh, real life John Wayne character that was our captain on this squad too. This guy named Bill Burns, pretty fitting name for a firefighter, right? And uh, just a big hearted, great man. Uh, he was a leader. He, he put together, uh, I think the best team in the city of Chicago on our rescue squad. Uh, we didn't call it back then shared leadership. Some of the leadership books I read now call it, you know, shared leadership. He gave us ownership of the company. We made decisions together and you really felt part of it. Uh, he didn't have to initiate training and drilling every day. We came to work. Hey, let's set up this. Let's do this. He kind of Tom Sawyer us, you know, he pretended like he was having so much fun painting the fence that we took over. We we started painting the fence. That's what a good officer does. But this bill had gone on. He made battalion chief. So he was in a different part of the city. And I had worked for him for nine years. For nine years on this rescue squad, there was no promotional test. And when there was, most of us ended up right at the top of the list and quickly got promoted off that company. And Bill right behind us made battalion chief. So I, I went to, to Bill. And uh, I said, big guy, I, I got a problem. And and I explained it to him. And, you know, he uh, and he's not a man of many words. You know, he's not the. Uh, not the greatest uh, wordsmith, but it always comes from the heart and it means something. And he he said. Uh, I, after I said the whole story, he says, all right. What's the definition of a primary search? I said, wrap it into in, interior search in high heat, zero, usually zero visibility conditions. And I, what's the key word? Wrap it. Uh, what if you spent five minutes in that first room like you were looking for a contact lens instead of a victim, and then the victim's in the third room? Then what happens? That delay. So 
as simple as that was, that's all I had to do with verbalize it with someone that I really respected. And as we talked, it was like the anvil was lifted off my chest. And uh, I think in a very short period of time, almost immediately, I felt back to normal, you know, whatever normal is for Steve Chikorotis, but <laughs> but I felt normal and I was able to function with clarity again. Uh, so we just need, and, and quite often, it's that person that walks a similar life. Like if there's, uh, you know, someone from a, a police officer listening to this, if you talk to fellow officers, if it's the military, you talk to people, if it's, uh, I don't care if it's uh, a people working on a printing press, if you talk to your fellow workers about what you just experienced, those are the people that usually will really you know, hit home with us. Well, I think another element that I heard you touching on with, with Jason when you talked about the, the same call, the inability to save is something I don't think it's painted very well as we enter this profession. You know, you go, for example, into paramedic school, right? you push these drugs, you, you shock at this, this uh, you know, level, and then they're going to jump up, give you a hug, and then make you a cake next time you know, they see you at shift. The reality is I was the grim reaper in the EMS side. I never brought someone back from a code my whole career. So I was that black cloud. And it was, you know, it's, it's horrendous. But as I heard, um, you know, you talk about this call in, in the past, to me, the saving grace, even, I mean, there's so many areas where this is important as far as operationally, but even on a mental health side, if you know that you took your job seriously, you took your fitness seriously, you took your mental health seriously, and you took your training seriously, and you still lose someone, you have that to lean into. You kind of look yourself in the mirror and go, I really did do everything I could to prepare for this this one call. But if you were that guy in the lazy boy that didn't listen to the go signal, that you know, was just watching Jerry Springer reruns, and you have that call... Imagine how that's going to haunt you when you know in your heart of hearts that maybe that person died because you didn't prepare. I know where you're going with this, James. That's something that I let out. That was something that Bill said. Is uh, He said, you forget I worked with you for nine years, and, and I know that you study and you train and you work every day. So uh, he said, all we can do is our best and then let it go. And uh, you can take it a step further. At that point, God sorts it out. You know, that's all we can do is our best. And then let it go. And that, that was the key words that he did say to me that day. That uh, One of my guests, I can't remember who it was now, said to me, who told you you were God? Yeah. And I was like, huh. Sometimes we kind of almost slip into that mentality. Like I was supposed to say it. No. No, I just, my wife, I mean, she's grieving at the moment. Her best friend was battling cancer, went through chemo, was having surgery after successful chemo to remove the cancerous you know, elements of her, her organs. And she died two days after the surgery from complications from the surgery. Is that fair? No. Let's hope that the surgeon did everything that they could properly, but that, you know, that's that's out of your hands. I mean, it's tragic. And I think the prevention conversation is another entire thing when it comes to cancer and some of these other things that kill so many people so young. But yeah, we have to remind ourselves sometimes you're not God. 
you're you're a tool that they send <laughs> you can define tool in different ways but you're you're an instrument that god sends to try and mitigate that but we are not responsible for the outcome but we are responsible for our ability to prepare as best we can right and and you probably like me you're you're probably not a good loser in a sports game you know if I'm on a football field, I don't know what sports you played, if, but if you're on, on a field in a ring or a, or on a pitch, uh, most good athletes don't take a loss too good. But but we accept it, and we accept it because we gave our best. We gave gave our all. And if that's all we can do, and that, you know, bring it right to the fire service or whatever walk of life you are, that's all we can really do is our best. Absolutely. Well, you've talked about boxing, you've talked about, you know, you touched on physical fitness. So I'd just love to visit that for a moment. With you having experience from so many different angles, from the different um, ranks within the fire service, with being needing to be rescued, with being the team that's sent to rescue, talk to me about your philosophy of physical fitness in the fire service. Well, it's huge. Uh, for, for a number of years, uh, approximately five years, I ran training for the Chicago Fire Department. I had a deputy commissioner call me and ask me to come down and do him a favor for six months. But that six months ended up being like five years. And it was, uh, I looked at it as a time to give back. It was long hours. You know, you they, they call it eight hour days, but I was probably working, you know, 14 hour days. Uh but it was so rewarding because I brought uh, hundreds of, of firefighters onto the job with a great group of instructors that I was able to handpick. Uh, you know, some of the best men and women uh, in the world were the instructors down there. But uh, a big part of the job is the physicality of it. So something that I set up there, I, I changed the, the academy with uh, physical stations we call morning drills and they still do them to this day. And I, I had usually like 10 or 12 stations and one would be just climbing the aerial ladder to the roof of the fifth story uh, academy up to the heliport, which would be like a six story climb. Uh, one I uh, fashioned ballast by taking old hose and pipe pole handles over a pulley. And I had them doing a, pulling exercise that gets them used to using go muscles rather than show muscles if you're doing, you know, curls or whatever you're doing in the gym to impress the girls. Uh, we would have a station where I started them swinging sledgehammers, driving railroad ties in a channel, uh, much like they have now for combat challenge with, I don't know what they call it. The, the Kaiser sled? Kaiser sled, yeah. So we made our own Kaiser sleds. And then it progressed to an axe, and they learned to swing right-handed, left-handed. We had stations where they go on a pitch roof in the beginning, just learning to go around a chimney without grabbing the chimney. And I would make the chimney out of a cardboard box. And uh, so if they grab it, because most chimneys on pitched roofs, because they're exposed to the weather on all sides, they don't have much more structural stability than, than a cardboard box. So you, you have to go around without grabbing the chimney. And uh, so we, we learned how to make billy goats out of them. Now, these people are coming from all walks of life. I've had doctors, lawyers, uh, factory workers, kids right out of college, a lot of cops that would come over to the fire service, some with fear of heights. 
But by doing these physical stations every day, they not only develop the go muscles, the, you know, we'd have a rope station where you're pulling the halyard to raise ladders. And historically, you would always have smaller, weaker people would have a hard time raising, you know, 40, 50 foot ladders with the halyard rope. It really takes something. But my candidates started doing it every morning. And then it was kind of like two a days on a football team. Most football teams I played on, we always had two a days where you would have a physical workout, then you would have meetings going over plays, and then you would have another physical workout. So we started every day with morning drills for the first hour, no matter what the weather was, because we're Chicago, so it could be 100 degrees and it can be uh, 20 below zero. So we watched them and watered them and kept them warm, but we kept them working in the weather and going through the stations. Then they would uh, quickly change and go in their sweaty clothes into classrooms or hands-on classes throughout the rest of the day. And then the last part of the day, the other instructors and I would lead them usually on like a five-mile cadence run. And then we would get to our destination and do calisthenics. And I uh, had great workouts and I had some great guys to, to lead these workouts. And I always partook myself. Uh because I, I don't believe in ordering others to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. I think that's a sign of a good leader and a, a real important, again, no matter what walk of life. So I, I think it's real important. And at the end of every class, and these would be six-month classes, I would have spouses, husbands and wives, thanking me for the great shape that their spouse is in. But in my head, I'm thinking, that's the reason they're going to be able to come home to you, maybe because they're in good shape. And then you try and also sell the philosophy. I had dietitians come in and teach people how to how to eat properly, nutritionists. And uh, uh, in most cases, people would maintain that. I'd see them through the rest of their career. And then you'd see sometimes the person that you work so hard to get in shape, you see them two years later and they, they look like their old version again. But uh, Again, all we could do is our best, but very important for the profession. And it helps with mental health, too. Physical health leads right into mental health. Absolutely. Well, again, going back to that inability to save, I, I, there's the phrase, you know, would you want you rescuing you? And I always kind of flip it around. You know, how would you feel if your loved one died because the rescuer hadn't trained? That, put, that person couldn't make it up a 20-story building or they couldn't right. hold the extrication tools, you know, whatever it was. I mean, it's so basal, but I think in this this very sensitive world that we find ourselves now with fat shaming and, you know, hurt feelings, I'm I'm very middle of the road. I'm not from an extreme voice. I'm not shout, shouting about participation trophies or anything, but we're in a very unique profession where lives are at stake. Those standards have to be set high and held high regardless of political environment or your distorted version that lowering standards will increase hiring. I would carry that through like as a, a chief officer near the end of the job. I, I wouldn't Monday morning quarterback. You know, I would try it. At the end, I had 30 firehouses. I couldn't hit every firehouse every day or even every month. You know, maybe every month I could. But uh, but I would have meetings with the company officers and set your expectations and what you want and, and uh you know, train like your life and the life of your brother and sister depends on it. 
you know, as a battalion chief, an, an example I use quite often in classes, I was in a, uh, I had five firehouses as a battalion chief. I was on the southeast side of Chicago in a Roseland neighborhood. It's a shoot them, stab them, fire district, wild area. So I had great firefighters that really had their hearts uh, in it. And and uh, we trained and drilled all the time. And I worked with this super group of guys with engine 62 and truck 27 and and my battalion out of this one, one particular firehouse. And one of my guys... Uh, his, his heart was as big as his head, a family guy, one of the best firefighters I know, a guy named uh, Tommy Shergan. We have a fire uh, winter night and uh, big battleship. Uh, it was a th- three-story frame with a basement apartment, but but there was multiple families living in there, and the basement was peck rats, so they had a lot of fuel. Every newspaper they ever had, they saved, and and that's where the fire started. So we we have a lot going on. I have rescues going on. I know I'm going to lose this building, and I know I'm going to have to make a call pretty soon for what we call an emergency evacuation, where I get all my people out because uh, uh, we overstayed our welcome, and I'm not going to lose firefighters there. So I, I, I want to make sure that we got all of our areas searched and uh, or as the best that we could. So right as I'm about to order an emergency evacuation, this Tom Shergan appears in this front window and I'm looking eye to eye to him, but he's 38 feet above ground. And uh, he's on the radio and he's saying, uh, uh, engine 62 to battalion uh, 22, I, I'm gonna need a ladder to the, I, I said, I, I, I see you Tom, <laughs> you know, I see him in this window. And behind him was this black churning smoke uh, for non-firefighters. The faster and the darker the smoke is moving when it's really churning, we know that any second it's going to light up and it's going to be a blowtorch. And he's in this tight little window, and that's his only ventilation. He's on air, has good PPE, but that's it. And um, I, uh, a truck we in Chicago, we have a third truck respond on incidents and they become our writ truck. And we take that writ team with uh, with a battalion chief and they become your writ team. The chief was also just arriving and this truck is just getting there. And I uh, call a mayday and I order a ladder to this third floor window. Now it's freezing, there's icy snow and it's uh, uh, there's a tree two trees in the front yard with the the branches kind of interwoven. There's a cyclone fence around the front yard. So this truck team has to hustle, get this ladder off, get it over this fence, do an obstructed beam raise to fit it up to the window, raise this up in these bad conditions and get it to Tommy. And as they're in the process, they're they're performing magnificently because they're a well-trained team that had a great officer and they get this ladder fully extended. And I just hear the dogs kaching. That's the locks on the ladder. I hear, I can't see it because it's night, but I hear that they're locked in place. Now all they have to do is lay the ladder in. And right then there's a blowtorch that comes out like 15 feet out of the window. And I, I lose sight of Tommy. Uh, I'm assuming because we train that way, 
we know that you don't stay in a window that has flame like that. You have to hit the deck uh, belly to the floor, and that's going to be your only chance of surviving, even with the gear that we have, and then wait until the ladder is ready. So as soon as the ladder is thrown into place, and still it was a little short where he had to jump on this icy little roof, a decorative ledge, and slide to the ladder. As soon as it lays into that gutter edge, I'm yelling, Tommy, come out. And he instantly dives out. I'm flying up the ladder because I'm thinking I'm going to have to go in. I have a deck gun about to hit that fire, and I got to go in and try and pull my buddy out. And I'm not even halfway up the ladder, and I see his boots sliding for this ladder. So Tommy Shergan lived because a, a multitude of things. One, he wore his PPE properly, and I've lost really good friends because they took shortcuts, maybe had the hood pulled down, the ears exposed, which, uh, you know, set off a bad chain of events. But in his case, everything was worn properly. He was disciplined and trained well enough that when the worst happened, and he was burning up at the floor, but he knew he would have perished in the window. He hit that deck. Uh, the dogs got locked. The ladder goes in. He hears my voice, and he would tell me later, I, I knew you would call me. I was waiting for your voice. And uh, I, I think I took a bigger hit than Tom. I was so taken back by this. You know, I think how close I come to losing this this great man uh, that – that night when we get back to the firehouse, I'm, I couldn't sleep. I'm just looking at the ceiling thinking how we dodged a bullet, how we made it out of that. Uh, Tom was so close to everything, you know, he can't see the forest for the trees that it didn't really even hit him until we talked about it later. And then it got emotional. But what I'm getting at is is uh, he lived because of his PPE, but he lived because that team, they stayed in great physical shape. And they trained and drilled, even though we we're going to fires every day. If I drove by that house, it was truck 42, they'd be raising ladders. They'd be, uh, you know, swinging axes on railroad ties. They're, they were staying up. They they wanted to be perfect. And I, I, I kind of think everything they trained for in their whole life took place right there. And they got that ladder to him. Uh, the exact amount of time, I believe, was 37 seconds from the time they jump out of the rig, and I could tell by radio communications, to exactly. So pulling it off of a truck, racing it over a fence between with this obstructed beam raise in 37 seconds, and that just can't happen. Just like Sully Sullenberg, that just can't happen that you land a plane in the Hudson. But it does because of training, and that's what these guys did. They trained like their brother's life depended on it. And then to, to bring this, you know, close to home, we always talk about a family and our brother and sisterhood that we have. It was about three days later, I was at Tom Shergan's daughter's wedding, and I'm watching him walk his daughter down the aisle, and that got emotional for me. You know, it was, uh, I, I'm looking at this great man and knowing how close it was. And that, that's the fire service kind of in a nutshell, you know, I mean, those are the things we can do if we stay at the peak of our game until the day we retire. Absolutely. And there's nothing so more sobering than watching a helmet being given to a grieving family and a folded flag. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And whether it's a, you know, traditional line of duty death in a fire and in something horrific like that, or more often than not, cancer, overdose, suicide, all these things that we're seeing claiming now, that one individual that becomes a, 
a faceless statistic in a lot of these, you know, presentations and, and upper echelon conversations. Each one of those is, is an entire destroyed community. You know, we, we have 578 badges on the wall of the fire academy that I used to run. And uh, it's humbling every day that you walk down that hallway, you remember why you're there and why you're coming to work. And a lot of them are close friends of mine. One softball team that I played on, we had a championship softball team that we would win the fire department league every year and then beat the police champ in a, in a, in a championship game. Uh, four of these members, four of them, their badges pretty much touch each other in the display case. So, so it really, you know, hits home when it's, uh, when it's your own and, and when it's people, you know, near and dear to you. And by that, I, I would start every class with uh, a little walk down that hallway and I show them that display case. And a, this is why we train and drill right now. I, I, uh, I my my uh, second job, my second career, or something. I, I I put thirty six years on with the Chicago Fire Department, and uh, I've been working in the television and movie industry for the last thirty three years, and currently still am. Uh, I'm a producer and a tech advisor on a television show, NBC Chicago Fire. And eleven years ago, when we first cast the actors, that's where I started them was in that same hallway. I started them with the badge display. And I said, this is what this show means to me. You represent my heroes. These are my heroes, my brothers on this wall. I, I say brothers, not in a sexist way. I'm knocking on wood. Thank God we, we never lost a female firefighter uh, yet. And I hope it never happens. But uh, uh, so I started the cast there, just like we start and you could see the seriousness they understand and they really get the job and they respect the job. And that's important to me so that they can portray firefighters uh, with that respect. And, and, uh, and it's turned out greatly. And then we had a, a week of training to teach them how to look like firefighters, <clears throat> not to be firefighters, but to be able to climb ladders, swing axes, breathe air, go into fires, do search and rescue. Uh, so that's my, my other world, but it it still demands training and the seriousness of knowing what the end stake is. You know, it. Uh, I never wanted when anytime I had close calls in my life for an ambulance ride and uh, uh, where I know that I came within an inch of losing my life. I was never afraid of dying for myself. I think firefighters, I think we kind of accept that, you know, sometimes we really have to push it. We took an oath and we're out there to save civilians. So sometimes we really have to push it. We don't want to lose anybody, but sometimes you have to. But what would always haunt me was the image of a fire chief or a chaplain ringing my doorbell in the middle of the night and telling my wife and my little children at the time that daddy's never coming home. And that would also be a sobering factor and drive you real hard to uh, keep the training up and keep the message there for other firefighters. And, uh, but you know, it's a life and death industry. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the entertainment industry, um, because I was told early life that I couldn't be a firefighter and then had this kind of, 
it was interesting. When I look back now, I was fumbling through life. And ultimately, it's because I was supposed to be a firefighter. Um, I found myself in the world of stunts. I went to drama school. It was blatantly obvious that I was one of the world's worst actors. But the physical side, I seemed to do very well. And I did a, you were a boxer. I was a martial artist for most of my life. So that came in together. And so it took me into that world and then the fire service. So when I was on probation in Anaheim, for example, I got myself and then quite a few of my friends on the World Trade Center movie and we played firefighters in that film. Um, I had uh, Josh Brolin on when uh, around the time he'd just done Only the Brave. John Travolta was on after the Ladder 49. So it's an interesting perspective when you are a firefighter and then you're exposed to the good, the bad and the ugly of the Hollywood side of portraying our profession. So if you wouldn't mind, walk me through how you first became introduced to this entire uh, industry and then kind of some of the, the highs and lows of your experience coming from the actual profession. Yeah. yeah you, you know, I, I started, it's going to sound weird, but I, I started with the movie Backdraft and I was the tech advisor on that movie. It was Ron Howard, uh, Robert De Niro, uh, Billy Baldwin, Kurt Russell, Scott Glenn, uh, just a tremendous cast. Uh, uh, but at the time I was writing uh, writing articles, I was a lieutenant on the job, a newly promoted lieutenant, uh, teaching classes. And I, I was inspired as a young kid, to, again, talk about mentors with, uh, you know, trouble going on in my life. Uh, I wasn't the greatest student, but I had a grammar school teacher named Kathy David that gave us a creative writing assignment. And uh, I don't forget it over all these years because she got real emotional and and called me out in the hall. When, and, and I had really got into it and put a lot of time and, and effort into it, which I very seldom did for I just wanted to get by. I, I just wanted to be good enough that I didn't have to go to summer school, you know. So uh, she got emotional over this this uh, story that I wrote, and she said, "I want you to read it to the class." Well, there's no way I'm going to read it to the class. Those are my buddies in there, and they're going to, you know, make fun of me forever if I come up to read this story. Let the one of those smart girls let her read her story, you know, and. She didn't really give me an option, and she knew exactly what she was doing because at that time in my life, I had not her, but a lot of teachers, uh, people in my life were telling me, I can't. You'll you'll never really end up uh, being anything in life. Some people were pretty brutal. Sounds very and, familiar. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> so a lot, a lot of, lot of self-doubt, and I think because of that self-doubt, I went the other way and was act up and, you know, I don't care about anything, but, you know, sports and just getting by, that's all. So anyway, so I, I, she made me read this to, to the class. So I go up and I start reading it to the class and I'm expecting them to mess with me. And it was very short into the story. I see people leaning forward. I, I, I caught them. They wanted to know what was coming next. And it, and it was the power of the story. I seen the power of the story at that time, and and I I loved it. And I uh, it goes more than that, but but besides believing in me and being inspirational to me, uh, 
she was so important in my life. But from that point on, I always thought I'd, I'd want to be a writer. I'd like to like to write, but I didn't know how. I, I didn't know how to get into that that world. In high school, I had a football coach slash English teacher that saw the same thing in me. He was like a second father. This guy, Jack Lord, he was uh, watched out for me. He expected a lot. You know, I, I expect perfection, but I'll settle for excellence. You know, that that type of guy. But uh, but he made me believe in myself and he was inspirational. So, again, I always wanted to. But then I got off on this track, you know, chasing money and thinking, uh, you know, I'll be an engineer or whatever, like I mentioned earlier, and then stumbling into the fire world. But then uh, I was teaching classes, writing yeah, training bulletins and magazine articles. I was starting to write my first book at the time. And I'm sitting with my wife because I was working at the training academy. At that time, it would be like, a, I think, a three-month detail where I would leave my rescue squad. And for three months, I'd be detailed down to the academy that years later I would be running. And uh, I'd be one of the instructors. So uh before work that day, I had a newspaper. There's no cell phones, computers. I had a newspaper, and I'm looking at a gossip column, which I never read a gossip column, and a, a fire word jumped out at me, backdraft. She probably had the sports page. That's probably why I was reading that section, because I'm the guy that starts at the back of the paper. Uh, so I see the word backdraft, and I think fire term. And I look, and Ron Howard was in town doing starting to do some research for an upcoming movie backdraft. And uh, I told my wife at that time, I said, Ron Howard's in town, who I loved. Uh, Ron Howard's my age. I grew up watching, you know, a lot of young people listen to this. They grew up, well, they wouldn't even be that young watching Happy Days. But uh, I grew up watching Andy Griffith. And Ron Howard was this brilliant childhood actor who was my age. And I I love that show. And I always followed his work. Well, now he's the director of this upcoming movie. So I tell her, I'm going to track down Ron Howard. He's going to need a technical advisor for this movie. And uh, why not me? I always look at that, you know, why not me? So, uh, and I, I'm always overly positive on my own abilities, but I really think that helps. I think that helps uh, make things happen. So in this case, part luck and, and part willing, uh, the very next day, not that day, that the next day I'm teaching a classroom and it was a rescue class, but it wasn't hands-on. I'm in a classroom and who comes walking into the, the back of the classroom is the chief of training with Ron Howard. And he had this other guy with him that I didn't know who would turn out to be a friend of mine is John Roman was his second assistant director. So they come walking into the classroom. I stop because I can't wait to talk to him. And Ron puts his hand up and says, no, uh, please just keep teaching. So now I, I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't auditioning and I was uh, putting on a show. Now I, I'm, I like to think that I, I, I talk colorfully Visually, I always think visually, and that's, you know, if you're writing in this industry, that's that's good for that. But uh, so 
because I was limited, it's easier to impress him. It would have been easier if I'm teaching a hands-on class and I could do some physical things, but I'm teaching and describing and bringing the dangers of the job uh, and how we're going to overcome them to the students. But I was playing on that guy in the back of the room. So it was, I looked at it as an audition. So I couldn't wait to talk to him after the class, but maybe about 10, 15 minutes before the class is over, they get up and go walking out and wave and go out the door. So I'm thinking as soon as the class is over, I'm going to go down and find them. So class ends. I'm looking around for Ron Howard. I go down to the break room where instructors that weren't teaching at the time were preparing for their next class or having a cup of coffee or whatever. And they said, Chick, you just missed Ron Howard. And I said, I know, where, where's he at? He, I seen him in a classroom and oh, he left and they could see I was disappointed, you know? So uh, uh, I blew it. I, I was trying, I, I uh, had already put a few calls. I mean, at that time you're calling information in Los Angeles for Imagine Films. And I put a message to his desk in, in LA that I would be interested. And I really don't know if he got that message or I, I, I think we talked about it. And I think it was just from the classroom, but the next day I get it. it there's no cell phones, or at least I didn't have them. I think they were those big giant things. Uh, I get called to the front desk, Lieutenant Chikorota's phone call. And there's this secretary, this uh, sweet woman that was up there, older woman. And she's hands me the, the phone and, yeah, Lieutenant Chikorotis, this is uh, Ron Howard. And I said, yeah, I got you, Ron Howard. And I bang the phone on the desk <laughs> and, and hang it up. And she's not pleased. She's looking at me. She's like, uh, what did you just do? And I, I'm walking down the hallway, that same hallway that has, you know, all the badges of my brothers that died. And I'm reflecting. I'm thinking, you know, it kind of did sound like Ron Howard. But I was sure it was my buddies messing with me. And luckily, I didn't get even halfway down the hallway, and I, I get called back, and it's Ron, and, and he was half amused. He said, I think you probably thought someone was messing with you. I said, yeah, I did. I'm sorry. I can tell your voice now. <laughs> and I, I told him later when we, we became friends, but but I was hired on the spot. So I, I was a tech advisor, and it ended up being like six months work with that picture, and that uh, – just uh, I, I did kind of what I did with the uh, Chicago Fire, where I trained the actors uh, right from the get go, helped with some script revisions. We we had the first arson investigator was supposed to be Brian Dennehy. And uh, while I was training all the actors one day at the studio post-production, maybe by a, about three weeks or pre I mean, pre-production by about three weeks. Uh, Ron comes out of his trailer and he says uh, he was kind of put back. We lost Brian Denny. Whatever movie he was working on was running behind schedule for weather problems or whatever. And uh, he wasn't going to be able to wait for him. So uh, the next day he comes out and he was almost skipping because they signed Robert De Niro for the same role. But now they took a script that was pretty, pretty darn good. And it had the arson investigator was about this big, about the size of a baseball. And, and all of a sudden they wanted it the size of a basketball. They wanted to swell it up a little. 
So Ron and uh, Greg Wyden, who was the writer, and I, I played in the technical writing aspect and was able to help with script revisions. And then when I seen the new script, when I seen stuff that I helped write and lines that I gave, you know, if you have something published and you're a writer, it's a real rush when it's published. When you see it come to life on the screen, you're really hooked. You know, it really gets you. So that led to other jobs over the years. Uh, many jobs over the years. And and I always wanted a, a fire show. I always wanted a fire television show, which there was none. Uh, there had been a show emergency that was, I was already like in my last year of high school and not watching television. So I really never saw that show then. I seen it years later and that was out. And some people became firefighters because of that. I've met countless people over the years that became firefighters because of the movie Backdraft. And uh, and again, now I, I meet young firefighters that became firefighters because of NBC Chicago Fire. And we're in our 11th season. So we're filming our 237th episode uh, this week. And uh, I, I, I take that serious for a reason that I think we show people what the fire service is. Uh, a lot of firefighters take it for granted because they grew up in these in this fire world, you know, smelling the smoke with, you know, dad or uncle or grandpa was a firefighter and they seen things. But uh, there's a lot of people like me that knew nothing about it. I think our our show, we do our best. You know, it's television. And and a movie's a movie. It's it, it's entertainment, which is important in its own aspect. But we always keep it honorable. You know, I mean, we we don't. Uh, I'm not going to show firefighters uh, doing stuff. There there was another show. I won't even say their name, but uh, good people. But they they pushed the line. They had firefighters like stealing in the middle of fires, having sex in the middle of fires. Yeah, I, I would tear someone's arm off if I caught them stealing from some poor guy's, uh, you know, house fire. They're going through drawers, but they, you know, so we talked in the beginning with the producers and the, and the head writers, and I wanted to keep it honorable, and, 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 we, and we have. You know, we, we fudge for entertainment the way you have to. We can't make it zero visibility or it'd be a radio show, so we you have to be able to see what their actions is. But by the same token, people see things that firefighters do that they never realize firefighters do. We show post-traumatic stress. We show the roller emotional roller coaster, the, the baggage that firefighters carry and how they have to deal with it. We show taxpayers why they're paying taxes for firefighters that they do a lot of crazy things. And, and we don't really have to fudge. You know, a lot of the incidents are, are written from, you know, they're derivatives of, of real incidents. And I usually don't exaggerate them. I usually kind of dumb them down. You know, uh, this Bill Burns that I, I told you about, uh, my one of my big mentors in the fire service, my longtime captain, now he's in his 80s and still healthy, thank God, and happy and retired. And I hope to see him this next week. I want to take him to dinner. But uh, uh Bill, uh, right after I got promoted lieutenant, so it was still my old team, and I'm on a neighboring truck company. We respond early morning hours to a multi-unit apartment building, 
And I'm on the high first floor and Bill and my old team, two of my old buddies are on the third floor doing the same thing we're doing, which is search and rescue. It was a single room occupancy, low income, uh, the common bathrooms down the hallway. So we're booting in doors, grabbing people. We, we had another fire in the area and monstrous amount of fire in the basement of this building that was coming up the only two stairways that were unprotected, which means there's no doors to close off the fire. So we had two engine companies trying to hold back that fire so we could get up the stairway. And that's all they could do. They had their hands full. And we're trying to clear and and steer people down this protected stairway. So uh, Bill is doing the same thing on the top floor. And all of a sudden, they they lose it. They lose control of the fire. And, and now we have fire racing up both stairways and flashovers happening in the hallways. My team and I were able to get out this high first floor window with a little rope slide that I had in my pocket. But Bill's team was trapped up in the top and they're in a room that they had already booted in the door. So there's no locking mechanism to hold that door shut. And the pressure of the flashover in the hallway is pushing on the door. And this big, strong guy said it was everything he had to hold back that door. Now, this was in the Charlie side or the back side of the building, which faced an industrial area. And this was real early morning hours of a Sunday. So there's nobody back there. People were, our, our radios were primitive by today's standards. And people, there was multiple May Days going on at the same time, firefighters in trouble. So Bill has uh, Danny Fabrizio, who would go on to become our union president, and it's Lenny Urbanski at the window trying to get a ladder which required a, a 38 foot ladder to get to that window. And uh, he's holding back the door. Now the flames start burning through the top of the door and, and his head, they're looking back at him and they can't even see his head because he's in the flames and he's holding it back with everything he had. And, and they keep calling him to the, to the window. And he said, not till you get a ladder. So it took a while and they finally get a 38 foot ladder around to the back Lenny gets on the ladder. Danny's calling Bill. He said, not till you're on the ladder. Bill, Danny gets out on the ladder. Bill lets go. And it, Danny described it. It looked like Superman flying out the window because the pressure of the fire was pushing him out the window. And he's literally flying out this window, hooks the ladder. They slide to safety. He's got a hole that you could fit a 12-inch softball in the back of his helmet. So his head was badly burned. But he would not abandon that door because, in fact, he would never tell you because he's way too humble. But I know his firefighters always have a plan B. His plan B was if he succumbs to the burns and, and what have you, his big body is going to drop right there. And, and maybe his body will hold that door back just enough for his team to get out that window. So that's the kind of heroic person I worked with. You could see why he was such a great mentor. His team, people I've worked with, nine of us ended up as chief officers. One is the commissioner of the, became the commissioner of the department, a union president. Uh, the lowest of anybody that worked for him was was uh, was a, one of our best company officers in, in the city of Chicago, you know? So uh, that's what happens with real good, strong leaders. So now get back to the television show. In uh, season two, I reenact that scene 
and and we have it with uh, our captain on the show is his captain Casey and he's holding back the door and the helmet burns and and people are saying yeah you know is that really going to happen but in Bill's case it was to a much higher level than what we showed on the show uh we we had an incident with my squad company when I was the lieutenant where uh a partner of mine, Sean O'Driscoll, and I are doing a sweep on the third floor of a fire building, and we have fire in the apartment that we're searching, and they can't get us a hose line yet. We're doing this rapid search, and I'm in a room that's like a dining room, not expecting to find somebody, and I sweep out, and I feel a child's leg, and I yell to Sean, I got one, Sean. And uh, so he holds his position. I crawl out to where the body is. I'm going to pull it back to me. But it's not, it's a child's leg, but I can't pull it. And it turned out there was a pile of kids. There was like, uh, I believe, five kids. Yeah, there was three laid out. They were laid out like cordwood, three on the bottom, two bigger kids across ways, then his wife, then his mother-in-law, and then on the top of the pile, this hero, much like that little five-year-old boy that I found my first day of the, on the job, he laid on top and took the brunt of it. And uh, so now I, I call my rest of my rescue squad, which was all over. And I grab off the top of the pile and everybody's grabbing. So I have this dad and I worked him like uh, after carrying him down from the third floor down to the front yard. I worked him like uh, like it was my own brother. I didn't want to lose him because I had seen what a heroic thing he he did and uh, we lost him and we saved everybody else. The mother-in-law ended up dying like a week later, but the mom and the kids ended up living. And in a big city like Chicago, you'll hear it, but we, you know, we don't, uh, we don't go to the funerals. Uh, I don't. And, uh, and, you know, you, you, you can't stay sane that way. You try and separate a little, but every once in a while you get that good news that victims that you saved live. So a couple of years later, I get called by one of the chiefs. He said, do you remember this fire? And he gives you the address. And I said, of course I remember it. I'd never forget it. He says, well, we're being sued by the family. So the same family that we saved is now suing the city and everybody else, you know, the smoke detector, probably the whatever caused the fire, a heating plant or, you know, whatever it was on one of the lower floors. So they're like suing everybody, landlord but they're suing the fire department. So over those years, I had always thought about that dad and that family, and I wished them well in my mind. And I, I wanted a chance to, to speak to them. I hoped that someday I would get a chance to see them, but I know it's never going to happen. It happened in a courtroom. So I come walking in and I'm like, uh, they're looking at me like you would look at bin Laden walking into a courtroom. And here I'm happy to see they're a couple of years older. They're dressed nicely, uh, pretty and handsome. And mom's sitting there in a nice dress and they're scowling at me. And I go up to testify and, and the city attorney had me to describe what we did. And I proudly told them, you know, the actions of my crew. And, and that's the reason why, they're alive. And I also told them how much it impacted me. And it was 
baggage that I took home was their father because I've seen the opposite. I've seen parents run out of a building and leave their kids to survive, you know, the fight for survival. So it was heartwarming to see the heroic man that this father was. And uh, as I'm talking, the whole family's crying. The judge was watery-eyed. I'm sure I was. And I, I told him how it was. And I don't even know because I didn't stick around. Or it, the court case went on for a while. I don't know what the final findings were. If they got money, I hope they did. You know, I don't even care. But I had that chance to look them in the eye. And I know one thing, when I walked out of there, I was no longer, you know, the enemy. But then we used that same incident on the show and again, dumbed it way down. It was two kids, lose the mother-in-law. It was just uh, two kids, a mom and a dad. And uh, and the dad died. And now you speed things up on a television so television show. So there was a deposition like the next week. And Casey's in the deposition. And he got to say a lot of the same things that I said to that family in that courtroom. And I, I thought the scene was dynamite. Most people loved it. I had a few calls from firefighters uh, that really loved the show. One, one guy, a uh, uh, big chief, a well-known chief in New York City, calls me up. He said, Steve, you know, I love the show. But in that one, pushing it a little bit. And then I told him the real story. You know, it's uh, no, it's not. You know, so so we push on real stories. uh it gives me a chance to honor people like Bill Burns and these great men and women that I've worked with for 36 years in a fire department in Chicago. And I, and I, like I tell the actors, you don't just represent Chicago firefighters. We all walk the same life, the same boots. Uh, we put on the same boots and go into the same type of buildings, whether you're a different city or a different country or a volunteer department or a full-time department. It, it really doesn't matter. You represent them all. And and they take that to heart. And uh, I think that has a lot to do with the success of the show. We're the number one rated drama on network television, and we're in season 11. And we're about to get picked up for a couple additional years and probably many more after that. It's amazing. I think one thing that people don't realize, and I've had this kind of, you know, again, realization recently, I feel sorry for law enforcement because they are portrayed so poorly in most things that are on television and on screen. But if I ask people to name, you know, some famous footballers that talk a lot now or Navy SEALs or whoever it is, you're going to come up with, you know, a handful of names at least. But when it comes to police and fire, I mean, who is that? Who is that person? Who is the Jocko Willink of the fire service, for example? We don't really have it. And none of us would want to be on the pinnacle, but because of that humility, I think, and borderline meekness that we have, people don't understand what we see. And I think the value of what we see, not only the heroism that the men and women to our left and our right, um, you know, the, the stories of their heroism, but the tears in the fabric of society. One thing that I've, I wrote a book a couple of years ago and, you know, kind of detailed some of the stories from my career, which I was never at any giant event you know i didn't pull out numerous people from house fires i had a normal you know what i would consider probably 99 percent of the population's fire experience and that includes a huge amount of trauma um but for example you watch the television and you're like take these pills and you'll be happy you'll be out this model and you can dance and go into the beach and surf 
and you see the obesity epidemic, you see the the opioid epidemic, you see the gang violence, you see all these things. So there's so much value to storytelling from our professions if it's done well. As you said, if you start getting into the ridiculous, well, you've just lost all the power of the narrative that we initially had. So there is a responsibility. I understand, sadly, that there is the kind of Americanized element to our television at the moment, but these stories are important. And the more that people see what the men and women in uniform do for them, and it's not just sitting around, petting the Dalmatian, playing cards, waiting for a fire. This is 2022. Um, you know, the more I hope it not only helps us within the profession, but it helps people understand the sacrifices that we make, the sacrifices that the family make. But also when a politician comes to you and said, hey, we're going to make cuts. Maybe those people understand, well, wait a second. What impact is that actually going to have on these men and women and also on their delivery of service? Yeah, that's my my hope, too, is to uh, educate it. Let's uh, civilians see through the smoke, just like myself. I didn't know what took place in those buildings in that zero visibility until you're doing it. You know, it's a, a lot of that is thankless. Nobody knows, but we know. You know, it's uh, the old saying, it's kind of like peeing in your pants in a dark suit. You get a nice warm feeling, but <laughs> nobody else knows. But we know, and, and your brother and sister knows. And that's everything. You know, if, uh, when you have a job like, you know, the military, fire service, police department, when you get praise uh, from your peers and you, you might be on the other side of the truck and you're that young firefighter cleaning up your mask to get ready for, for the next job, and you'll hear the older guys talking on the other side of the rig. Hey, that uh, kid really performed today. I think he's a keeper. And uh, man, that was like winning the Super Bowl. That was the greatest praise that you can ever have. Better, much better than any award or you know anything. It's just the uh, respect of your peers. And sometimes that's what what pushes you to to do your best. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned backdraft has inspired young firefighters, Chicago Fire, Ladder 49. How many firefighters do you think backdraft 2 inspired? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a pass on that. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to turn that back into a positive. That was a little, you know, I mean, it is what it is. Um, when I was talking to Jason, he told me something interesting that you're working on a version of a prequel to backdraft and it's based on a real arsonist so bringing that back in i mean i don't want you to divulge, divulge everything and give everything away yeah but he touched on a real life event that you had and i'm sure this probably factored into your boxing training as well so if you you know if it's a, a road you want to go down now i'd love to hear the story of the real world arsonist that you know in some way shape or form inspired part of the story Sure, we we are in a, in the process of doing a prequel on Backdraft, and if uh, for people that seen the movie, we had a great actor Donald Sutherland who's now in his eighties, uh, and uh, he played this Ronald the arsonist, and arsonist to uh, you know I'll, sometimes I'll hear firefighters jokingly say, "Yeah, we need another arsonist in this area. We got to get some fires." To me, arsonist are mass murderers. They're among the worst people in the world. They they sneak around at night. They're certainly the most scariest people in the world because they, they do their work at night. They crawl around. The, the good ones, if you'll call them a good one, uh, the skilled ones, I'll say, they know where and how to light the fires at, you know, 
I won't even get into that and and fuels and timing devices and things that they have. So they can be very scary. They have multiple reasons. Sometimes it's arson for profit and uh, it'll be a overly insured business or a business that's gone bad and they can't sell the business or the building and they're going to cut their losses and try and make a little profit. And, and I've been there and seen it where they don't care if, you know, 12 people live up above this business. They're going to light it up in the middle of the night. And then it's our problem when we get there. I've seen it where firefighters die. We lost three firefighters at a fire that uh, I worked at, uh, Captain Knuckles and uh, Tally and Fortune. We lost three. And the fourth guy, a real handsome kid named Sam Lasko, movie star handsome, uh, was burned up beyond recognition, but but was pulled up by my squad company and and survived. But that was arson for profit, you know, just for 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 nickels. And then some of the real scary ones, like this Ronald guy that uh, Donald Sutherland's character, that we're we're going back and we're going to do a 1970 version, and we're going to show because that's pre the movie Backdraft, and we're going to show how this arsonist became this arsonist. We're going to use Donald Sutherland's character when we come back to modern times in the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie. And the story will be about this. Uh, we'll get to see how this, how this happens. But in the, in the real world, uh, there's a guy that we called Fat Albert. And that's kind of who this character was based off of. And Fat Albert was... Uh, notorious and very hard to catch back then. Think uh, that's a world without security cameras, without camera phones. So you're sneaking around and you, if you get away from the scene, uh, there's no way to to get you. There's not fingerprints or DNA because it's because uh, the extent of the fire. Uh, I mean, there's ways that a science to it that we can uh, try and get people. But for the most part, a guy like that, everybody knew it was him, and he was getting away with it. Some firefighters thought he was getting a bum rap. There was actually firefighters that invited him into the firehouse to play cards, and he would be a regular. He hung out like a fire buff at this one particular house, which always got my neck hair up. And he would set with timing devices, set a fire, prior to going to that firehouse or going into a restaurant. And now he would show up to the fire with this fire company and we would be there and there'd be dead kids and families. And, and he would always have a big smile, be in the front of the line. And again, we knew it was him. He later did minor time for arson. They never got him for any of the murders that he did. But the experience I believe you're referring to one day when I, I had a young family, I'm a firefighter on rescue squad to a heavy rescue unit. We're on the west side. And I I had, uh, I believe the previous work day or the day before put kids in body bags from a, a, a Fat Albert fire. And we knew it was his by the MO. Yeah, you know, where the uh, fire was lit was in a particular area. He understood fire science. Uh, he blocked stairways with his fires. And uh, so people on the top floors wouldn't have a chance. If it was an abandoned building with occupants up above, he would start the fire low, open the door to the front stairway, start it on the back stairway and have people trapped. So uh, 
And he, again, would always be out there to admire his work, and he would just love to watch it. So we're uh, in a predominantly Puerto Rican neighborhood at the time, this Humboldt Park area, where he was doing a lot of his work at that time. And it was part of the, my squad had a real big fire district. So uh, again, dead uh, kids and a couple adults, but I'm putting kids in, in a body, a kid in a, a body bag. And I said, if I see Albert out there, uh, I'm not gonna be able to control myself. I think I was mostly talking to myself. I think one of my teammates knew later, but uh, I come out and it was a nice sunny day. I don't remember if it was cold or warm, but Albert was in the front row of a lot of people watching and I'm carrying a body bag of a kid. And I see Albert once I put the, the kid's body into the apparatus to be hauled off to the morgue, I uh, grab Albert. I says, uh, come here, I, I got to talk to you. And I'm trying to get him to, and this is not, uh, I'm not proud of this. This is just where my mind was. I'm trying to get him to the gangway and I'm going to pummel him uh, because I can't do it in front of everybody. It was daytime. People would see. Uh, so I, I'm trying to, and, and he would not come with me. And he was a stocky guy. He was uh not tall, but wide, and he was a strong guy. So I get him by the collar, and I'm saying, no, come on, I got to talk to you. And I'm, I'm behind him, and I'm bumping him in the knee with with the, the back of the knee with my knee, making him walk. So I get him all the way to this gangway, and the whole way there, he's, he's denying having anything to do with the start of this fire. And uh, we get into the gangway, and I'm in the process of spinning him around, putting his back into the wall, and, and I'm going to get a get a shot on him, a punch. Uh, and as uh, as I'm in that process, he, he he's fearful now. He knows what's coming, and he says, "I'm telling you, Chikorotas, I had nothing to do with it." But James, my my knees started quivering because he knew my name. There's 4,800 firefighters in Chicago, but he knew my name. I have an arsonist and I have young kids at home and we work 24 hour shifts and you're, you can't be home to protect your family at those nights that you're working. And I'm about to slug a mass murderer who the police cannot protect me because they can't get him into jail. And, uh, I, I was on my own. So, uh, I immediately pulled my hands off of him, which is a good thing anyway. You shouldn't be hitting people. But this was a young version of myself that was distressed by all the probably post-traumatic stress of all the bodies I'm putting in bags. And and uh, they can't do anything. I, I was at least going to let them know that uh, he's got my attention and he's got to stop. So now I changed my whole demeanor. I said, uh, Albert, all, all I'm saying, and I don't know how I worded it, but if you have anything to do with this, kids are dying, man, we, we can't, we can't do this. And I'm like, uh, being nice with them as far as, uh, to back off. And, and he again denied that he had anything to do with it. And he had that little crazy look in his eye. And now I'm, I don't know what to do. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to people. Can I get a squad car sitting on a house? They said, you know, they're not going to do that. 
that happens in television and movies. That's not, not going to happen. I went shopping for smoke detectors. I had smoke detectors in every room in the house. I had smoke detectors in closets. I took basement windows and screwed them shut so they couldn't come in. You know, I, 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 I did what I could do. And I told my wife, I didn't even tell, I figure no sense telling her that I probably pissed off an arsonist that I hoped that I had backed off enough and made amends with him. But I told her, uh, if you hear anything at night, if the dog barks, here's what I want you to do. I said, there's been break-ins in a neighborhood, which there hadn't been. I said, I want you calling 911 right away and say there's a fire in the house. Because if you say fire, and that's true, uh, sometimes if you call for police, at least in my town, because of how busy they are, there might be a delay in police. If you say there's a fire, you're always getting emergency crews within like a minute, minute and a half. And uh, a lot of big people with axes and stuff are arriving and pulling up. So that was my thing. And then a lot of sweating. And after a period of time, it died down and he died down. I, I hadn't didn't see him. Uh, in fact, I didn't see him for many years until later. I'm a battalion chief and he came to work in my battalion and started lighting fires there, which was, uh, you know, a harder area because nationality wise, this uh, little heavy white guy didn't fit in in this uh, 100% uh, African-American area, but he was still lighting fires in that area. And I uh, had my partner, a battalion chief on a previous shift say, you're never going to guess who I bumped into at, at this church fire we had, Fat Albert. And I said, no, it can't be Fat Albert. He's, I, I, no one's heard of him for, for years. And uh, my guys on that previous shift did such a good job knocking out this church fire that Albert did a second round on it the night I was working. And I, I'm with him again. And I had a second round with him. But uh, yeah, they're, they're very scary creatures. It, uh, the science of arson investigation is better now than ever before. And thank God for uh, security cameras and cell phone cameras where it's much easier to apprehend. Insurance companies also slowed down uh, being with the quick payouts for arson. So arson for profit has slowed down somewhat and it's much harder to collect your money. So that industry, those, uh, you know, that uh, terrible people, uh, had to find a, a, another way to entertain themselves. But yeah, that was uh, probably uh, probably one of the scariest moments of my life dealing with him because you're looking eye to eye with a mass murder. And there was phone books at that time. There was one, it's not a, Chikorotis is not a common name. There's one Chikorotis in the Chicago phone book. And that was me. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I mean, you know, when you put it in that context, especially in, in the time frame that it was, as you said, I mean, the lack of backup, and even now in your city, I don't know, I'm not from Chicago, but what I've seen the last couple of years, I mean, are there resources and, and um, the ability to protect at the moment, you know, when they're being kind of hacked as far as their finances and their their uh, their staffing. Um, you've led us through, I mean, just, you know, minute portions of your incredible career. I kind of want to lean you know, towards the end of this conversation so I can be mindful of your time. But one of the most important parts of 
any conversation, especially mental health, I think is when we transition out of a profession, whether it's promotion into a desk, whether it's you know injury, being fired or, or simply retiring. There are so many great elements to this profession. You have that camaraderie, you have that purpose. And a lot of us identify as that profession, sometimes to the point where we lose ourselves even. What was your transition out like? Um, and, you know, if it was great, what were some of the things that set you up well? And, and if there were challenges, what were those challenges? Yeah, because the job was so important to my life and uh, because I was a firefighter for so long, for 36 years, James, I could not really remember not being a firefighter. It was just something that was in my blood. So w- when I knew the time was coming and it was really uh, they'll push you out of our job at at the age of 63. That would have been easier had I just been 63 and they make you leave, you know, but uh, uh, I, I left a few years before that. And I, I had this second career going and I was working so many hours with the, the television show had started up. We were in season starting season four, I believe when I, uh, when I retired and it was uh you talk about sleep deprivation and and just no family time, no time for personal time uh, where, you know, the, the most important commodity that we have is time. That's one thing that you can never get back as, uh, you know, we're spending this time, this uh, you're, you're allowing me to share a couple hours with you. And this is treasure time that I would never look back as a loss. But if you're... Uh, you're spending so many hours that you're not accomplishing other things. You don't want to be that guy that's uh, laying in a nursing home or uh, on a deathbed and thinking, I wish I had more time with my kids or my grandkids, you know, so it was time to retire. And and because I'm a planner, I set goals and, and uh, I, I uh, did it like a year out, a year out. I, I didn't tell anybody. A year out, I start. I told my wife, but uh, a year out, I started mentally preparing, and I already knew the exact day that I was leaving. And then it was a couple months ahead of time where I actually went and signed the papers and got that done. And I still kept it pretty quiet, but I knew. And as I snuck up on the date, it gave me time to mentally prepare for it. And you're right. I, I see a lot of... Uh, a lot of my friends that had a much harder transition than I, because I moved into my television show where I have camaraderie. Uh, the cast and the crew that I work with are like family to me. I've been with them for 11 years now. That's like, you know, starting uh, uh, first grade and going through high school together, you know, so, so we have our team and I have a lot of people from the fire service from Chicago and outside departments that work as extras on our show and we have a fire safety team for our action scenes so a lot of my comrades some retired and some active i still get a chance to work with them but others uh, that aren't as lucky with this occupation that i have now it's a hard transition for them and and uh in talks that i've had with people i had one guy that i had to really convince that uh He's the same person. You're always a firefighter. You're, you're, you're always a Marine. You're always a firefighter. That doesn't change. And uh, even though we don't 
still go to the fire station and hang out with the guys every day. You're, you're a firefighter. This one particular guy, and I, I'm, you know, I'm just using the one case that comes to mind. He feels like his neighbors even look at him differently, almost like he's worthless. And and you don't want anybody thinking that the, the most. Uh, so I worked on bolstering his self-esteem with a, a praising all of the accomplishments of what he's done and uh, how important family is and how important time is. And, uh, but I guess there's no one-stop shopping that, you know, some people will have a harder time with that transition than I did, but I, I think I would have had a hard time if it was just, I decide Tuesday and leave Friday. You know, I, I took a whole year to get my, my head in the right place. And on the last day, I, uh, I walked out with no no regrets. Uh, I think that's always a good thing. Like I set goals in my life. I I always uh, I, I learned that. That was another mentor that I had. I don't know. We're running out of time, James. Or? No, no, we got all the time in the world. Okay, because this is uh, pretty valuable for for anybody of any age and any occupation. When I was uh, yeah, I was a lieutenant and I was working in the film industry and and doing some writing. I was at a party that, uh, you know, people out of my class, I, I uh, felt like I didn't really belong there, but I'm at this party with a lot of people from big shots from different industries. And one of the guys there was, uh, somebody told me who he, who he was. He was the manager of the rock group Van Halen. And at the time they were one of the biggest rock groups in the, in the world. And, he calls me, I don't know, we're bumping at each other by the hors d'oeuvre table or whatever. And uh, he calls me over to chat and says, you know, I, I asked about you and uh, they told me you're a firefighter and you work in a film industry. And uh, what else do you do? So I'm telling him things that I do with writing and teaching. And he said, you sound real goal oriented. Uh, he said, do you, uh, I, I said, I am. He said, do you write them down? And I said, no, I uh, don't write them down with this complete stranger. He yelled at me in this party. You got to write them down. And uh, I like jump back. I'm looking. Other people are looking because it wasn't a real loud party. And I got this guy screaming. He's so animated over it that uh, you have to write your goals down and the magic happens. And he went on a, a little bit as to why. But. Who am I going to, uh, you know, who am I to second guess someone with that kind of success that took that time and was so, uh, you know, uh, you know, he was ready to yell at a total stranger to make me write down my goals. So I go home and I wrote down long term goals and I had them on note cards, you know, and I'd have a note card and I put it on my dashboard, tape it on my dashboard. I had one pinned on the on my cork board where I studied. And uh, and then I would write down, that night I started, I would write down short-term goals, just like a to-do list of things that I wanted to accomplish the next day or or in the coming days. And, and I kept those in front of me where I could see them all the time. Now I do it like most of us on, on a smartphone and I keep my long-term goals where I can see them. And and as we accomplish them, you you set it higher or you replace it with another one. But every night before I go to bed, that's what I do. I go through my planner and it's part just to keep you where you're not late for things, but it's part where 
I have that that carrot. I can see the carrot dangling in front of me, and it keeps me wanting to run for him. And he was right. That guy was completely right. Magic started happening, and I started accomplishing my goals at a pretty astounding rate. You know, I, I started accomplishing my goals, period, whereas sometimes I didn't have goals. And a lot of people, I always ask, you know, in classes, uh, you know, what's your goals? Do you even have goals? Or are we just kind of stumbling through life and take what comes, you know? So uh, if we teach that to our young people and our old people, uh, it's never too old to accomplish goals, to go back to school, to get that degree, to start that job, to write that book. It's never too old. Uh, you, you know, just write it down, have that goal where you're going to see it every day. And that's going to motivate you to uh, get off the lazy boy and start accomplishing it. Uh, so uh, somehow I got into goals with what were we discussing, James? Do you remember? Um, well, I mean, you started off talking about the um, yeah, the meeting the gentleman at the, the party, but uh, oh, the transition out of the fire service. That's what it was. Okay. Yeah. You know, so to, to, it's it's important to to have goals, think of what you do. You know, somewhere where, where I read something, uh, uh, one of the leaders, I, I like leadership books and uh, I like TED Talks. Somebody had that phrase like, what would you do if you found out that you had one more year to live? What do you want to accomplish? And and that's kind of the way we should look at it. You know, we can never take things for granted that uh, how much time we have on this planet or uh, think that we'll, we'll start losing weight or getting in shape or we'll start for that degree next year. Because next year will never come unless we act like, you know, the end is coming and we want to accomplish these things. You know, so what would you do? I mean, we had, I found that firsthand, uh, not to drag this down, but on, on uh, March 23rd of 2019, my wife and I got the phone call that every parent uh, fears. And uh, we got a call that my uh, middle, one of my middle sons, I had four boys and my son David was 30 years old at the time had been murdered. And uh, he worked in my industry, he worked for my show. The night before I worked till one in the morning filming, but he was with the set decorating department. They build the sets that we film on and his group got off. Uh, we were out on location. They got off about five o'clock in the evening and he come up and grabbed me from behind, grabbed my arm and said, Hey dad, I'm leaving. And, uh, uh, we're, we're done for the week. It was a Friday. He had finished his 60 hour work, work week and his 12 hour day. He had just bought a new house, new car. Uh, life was going good. I give him a hug, told him I loved him. Thank God. And, uh, he's at a party and everything tragically ended. Only recently did we finally get past it as a family and we did good. I mean, we, uh, as good as can be expected, we, gathered the family and we uh, talked about how we're going to come through this and we're, they destroyed David, but they're not going to destroy us. They're not going to destroy our family and that we're not going to turn to hate. We're going to keep loving our heart. And uh, that's always the answer is the love part. Uh, recently, as recent as just uh, a week ago, we finally had the final court case, a jury trial, which are very ugly where you have to see 
body cam footage that no family should ever have to see. And, and we did. And uh, to tell you where this is going, the, the silver lining is, you know, we, we now finally were able to put David to rest. We believe in God. We know he's in, in a great place and we, we will see him again. And we also know that we never have to see the three murderers that were charged. So all three of them were charged with at over the last year with first degree murder, uh, no parole, varying from 20 years to the last one still faces his sentence, which is going to be much more than that. And uh, so it finally went to rest. But what I'm getting at when that last case was finally over, we walked out of there feeling a little numb, uh, liberated, but it was hard to really hit us that first night. The next morning I woke up, it's a Friday morning, and I wake up to go to my show to go to work for the first time in two weeks because of the trial. And the sun was shining and I, I feel, and I feel like it right now, like a little kid on Christmas Eve. I, and I, I was so excited. I got to work and another one of my sons, my youngest guy who works on the show, who I hadn't seen smile in three and a half years, had a smile from ear to ear. And it's not about vindication. It's just that that's behind us, you know, and now we can move on. I called my wife, Mary, how, how are you feeling? She said, Steve, I'm dancing. And uh, I called my other boys and everybody equally great. So right now life is great. So I don't want anyone to think that we're immune to bad things happening. Post-traumatic stress doesn't happen to me. It happens to all of us and, and we can all get through and we, we control. This mind is the most powerful thing in the universe and we can really get through it if we work together, watch out for each other, tell each other when we're hurting. Alcohol is never the answer. Alcohol is a depressant. If you're if you're depressed and you you drink, uh, quite often the gun barrel ends up going in the mouth or something ugly like that. So uh, the the answer is uh, is love. You know, watch out for each other. Watch out for our brothers and sisters, and let's help them through this thing that we call life. And and we can. And uh, and we made it through that. We're going to make it through anything. Well, I mean, firstly, thank you for sharing his story because, I mean, when I heard about it, it mirrored one of my Anaheim captains very, very closely. He had, he had a young son. He was murdered um, pretty much the same way. We'll just leave it at that. But um, Pat Kenny is a mutual friend. He lost, obviously, it's lost Sean, his son. And then I was, an amazing man, you know, and I was talking to Dan DeGrice as well. And you kind of answered, I was asking some of them, you know, what, what, what else should I ask? You know, you're known for so much, you know, that whether it's your, your actual career in the fire service, whether it's your work on screen, but you know, these are the other elements. And, and one thing that Dan asked, I just want to kind of put it to you just to make sure that I underline it. He said, people like yourself are revered in the fire service. You talk a lot about mentorship, but you're a mentor to a lot of other people. You talked about your family being, you know, your your tight knit unit as well. But I'm assuming some of your mentors when you were younger, some of them are, are are passed on themselves now. Who do you, as a retired firefighter, pick up the phone and call? Who who are your go to people now? You know, the my uh, captain Bill Burns, and uh, we have. Uh, uh, people from my old squad company that uh, we crawl, we saved each other's lives. Uh, a 
getting Bobby McKee, uh, Joe Santiago, uh, Joe Guidi, John Pawinski. We're, we're like brothers. And it's funny because uh, one guy that I was very close with, he ended up becoming our fire commissioner, Jose Santiago. Uh, we crawled a million hallways together as firefighters came up on the rescue squad together. We just ran a scene on my show that just aired the other night on Wednesday on Chicago Fire, and it dealt with post-traumatic stress with one of the firefighters going through a lot. He was in the process of trying to rescue a guy on a ledge, which we've all been there, and and uh, this time he wasn't successful. The guy jumped as he was talking to him, trying to negotiate. So he's carrying a lot of baggage. And another firefighter that he kind of had a rivalry with ended up, uh, but but they loved each other. Uh, he uh, called him out on it and says, we, we got to spend some time together. And they went out and were having a night together. And it, we show them at the end laughing and sitting on a stoop and uh, in the inner city part of Chicago. And it, it instantly got me thinking of my buddy, Jose Santiago. And uh, I realized I hadn't talked to him for about five, six months. And instantly it's, you know, nine, uh, nine o'clock at night on a Wednesday night. I just had worked a long day. I'm sure Joe had a busy day, but I, I just texted him a simple message. How you doing, buddy? I, I love and miss you. And I got a similar message right back, which led to a uh, phone call and, uh, you know, so, yeah, so people like that, uh, you, you might not see them for five months, you might not see them for five years, but you could finish each other's sentences. And uh, those are people that you can open up to. Uh, usually I find that people that hold their boots on the same way are easier to talk to in those situations, even though I have a million very close friends that are actors and crew members of my show and we share things from the heart also. But when I'm really burdened mentally with uh, with an issue, it goes back to people that I know that felt the same pain. Beautiful. On Monday, one of my uh, crew from Anaheim's coming over, uh, one of my best friends. And it's funny, they, they were all, my whole crew was at my wedding. And I think by the time I got married, I believe I'd been gone for eight or nine years. And, you know, that's I think that's one of the things, especially if you've moved around, those those true brothers and sisters may have been from a previous department. They have been from, you know, the same department, but they worked with you 10, 20 years prior. But finding those people and also listening to that that hunch. I heard you kind of touching on on, on that one collapse where the, the hunch was the thing that everyone was talking about. But I find the same with when I think of someone, I need to pick up the phone because I feel that's a kind of universe or God telling me, hey, it might be nothing, but it might be something. So call either way. A lot of my, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of my fire service uh, brothers, sisters, uh, they, they're people that maybe I met teaching classes. They also are out educators around the country, but they wear the same uniform. And I don't see them often, but uh, when we talk, it's, uh, I wouldn't even know, people wouldn't know that we didn't come up crawling the same hallways together because we're, you know, brothers from another mother, right? You and I are, and uh, that's the way the fire service works. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to throw some very quick closing questions at you, if that's okay, before we wrap this sure. up. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because of your background, they seem more pertinent than normal. So the first one, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our very diverse discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, you know, there's so many. Uh, one that I've always loved, and because I love the guy too, uh, another one of my mentors, uh, Leo Stapleton. He was a commissioner of Boston. He he wrote a great book, Thirty Years on the Line, which he talks about his thirty nine year career on Boston, rising up from a firefighter to commissioner, and so many great stories in there. Uh, I love leadership books, uh, Extreme Ownership. It's by Jacko uh, Wilnick. Willink, and, yes, sir. Yeah, and uh, and his partner, again, uh, he's got a guy in. Uh, Leif Babin. I literally had him on the show about a week very ago. Very good. Very good. Yeah, thank you. And uh, they they have a tremendous book. And, and a, a fire service equivalent of that, Pride and Ownership, written by Rick Lasky. He's a guy that grew up in the Midwest, not far from here. And uh, we have so much in common. Uh, he's like a brother to me. And he's now the chief of Louisville, Texas. But uh, Pride and Ownership is a great book to pick up or any book that Rick writes. And and another great buddy of mine, uh, a chief from New York, Johnny Salka, uh, he has a few books out. He has a new one that just come out that I haven't seen yet. But I, I love his book, uh, First In, Last Out. It's a powerful book that uh, anybody in the fire service and anybody that just uh, admires uh, the fire service who wants to learn more or on leadership, whether you're a leader for IBM, it would uh, pay dividends to read any of those books. Beautiful. Well, thank you for those. What about a film and or documentary that you love? You might laugh, but we're coming up to Christmas season, and and my favorite movie of all time is It's a Wonderful Life, and that's uh, it was made uh, right after World War II. Frank Capra was the producer and director. James Stewart, Donna Reed is the cast. Jimmy Stewart gives such a great performance as a guy who his world is collapsing, and it kind of ties into things we discussed today. His world is collapsing and he's contemplating suicide on Christmas Eve. And uh, God looks down and it's not uh, Jimmy's time or, or uh, uh, it, it's not his time to go. So he sends down this angel, Clarence, and it's a cute little story where Clarence has to earn his wings. But then it 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 gets real and touching because... Clarence's way to show Jimmy Stewart's character why life is worth living is to show him what life would be had he never been born. And it's a great Christmas movie. It's a great movie anytime, but I watch it uh, probably twice every Christmas and it still makes me feel like a, like a kid. I saw it for the first time when I was a kid right after my dad died. It was just an old movie that popped up on television in the Christmas season, and it meant so much because it uh, it showed, you know, how powerful life is, how powerful we are in the world, and that uh, there's more. And, and he's able to turn Jimmy around where he, he sees how the life would be without himself there, and he wants to live. 
And uh, most people that commit suicide, that attempt to commit suicide and survive, whether they jump off of a bridge or put the gun barrel in their mouth, if they make it, you'll hear that the second they pulled the trigger, the second they jumped off the building or the bridge, they had regrets. They 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 wanted to live. Maybe that's why they survived. But I, I'm betting that they mostly all do. And it, it, you know, we and the warning sign wasn't out there, and they didn't get help. But that's a to me, it's a beautiful movie, very well done. And there's a cool backstory to it. You know, Jimmy Stewart was a war hero. He was a pilot, did several uh, bombing missions in World War II. And uh, Frank Capra had returned from the war, and they both were dealing with post-traumatic stress, but it didn't exist at the time. They would call it uh, battle fatigue, so they they would call it nothing. They would just toughen up and pretend like it's not happening. So Jimmy Stewart, before he went to war, he was the, the A-list actor. Everybody wanted him. Now he comes back, and these young guys, handsomer, spoke better. They took up all these roles for all these lead roles, and and Jimmy's phone wasn't ringing. So his agent calls him and he says, uh, you know, Jimmy, uh, uh, we're, we're not getting a lot of calls. We got this, uh, it's a wonderful life. And and Jimmy asked, well, what's it about? And he says, well, it's about this guy that wants to commit suicide. And Jimmy said, no, 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 no. I only, I don't want any sad movies. I only want to do comedies, but he wasn't the comedic actor. So uh, his agent talks him into just doing it, you know, you're not getting calls. Let's just go do the movie. So they're shooting like the first or second day. And Jimmy, where he used to be heart and soul into acting, all of a sudden this part wasn't important to him anymore because he saw life and death. He had crew members, uh, several of his crew members, planes went down and and he he, he saw death. And, uh, and now acting, you know, what's so big about acting in movies when you're dealing with life and death so he's pissed off. He says he's done. He's leaving. He storms off to his trailer and he's packing up his things. And in the movie, there's an old character, Lionel Barrymore, that played Mr. Potter. He was the banker. He was the senior guy. So they said, you go and try and talk to him. So he comes and talks to him. And uh, Jimmy didn't want any part of it. He said, no, nah, this is all bull crap. You know, acting is in movies. Who needs this stuff? And Lionel Barrymore put it this way. He said, you know, Jimmy, uh, uh, how important is entertainment to, to a world of people that just went through a devastating World War II where people lost family members and uh, some people are coming back from war? You think entertainment's not important? What do you think the only thing important in life is dropping bombs? You think, uh, you know, making people happy and making people tear up and feel emotional at the end? And he it it hit Jimmy and he went back to work and he delivered a you know wonderful performance. But when you see some of his now looking back, when you see some of his roles where he's in the crazed state wanting to commit suicide and he's running down Main Street yelling, it wasn't really acting. That was probably what was really within him as he's conquering uh, post-traumatic stress. So for for so many reasons, I, I just love that movie. And uh, documentary, I, I, you know, I've seen so many. I love documentaries. Uh, one I seen not too long ago, even though it was made uh, probably five, six, maybe more years ago, is it's called I Am Ali, and it's a story of Muhammad Ali. 
and it's his uh, fight. I, I love stories of greatness, of how people come from nothing and, and achieve greatness uh, through hard work and focus. And it's uh, it's great. And, and there's some powerful moments in it. You know, there was one, there's a young, they show footage. There's this young boy and he's uh, bald and, and dealing with leukemia. And you can see he's on his last leg. And uh, Muhammad Ali, the same one that I knew that would spend time with this young kid and uh, get me in a headlock and make me smile, even though I had all this bad stuff going on in my life. He leaned over by this kid with leukemia and he said, uh, he said, hey, we're going to get through this, you and I. You're going to beat cancer and I'm going to beat George Foreman. And the kid said, no, Muhammad, I'm going to meet God. And when I do, I'm going to tell him I know Muhammad Ali. And uh, isn't that powerful? That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's a great, great documentary. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm going to have to I think. Oh, I saw it, but I don't know if I did because I don't remember that scene. Another great one from martial arts was Be Like Water, the Bruce Lee documentary. That was phenomenal Oh, as well. I got to see that. Yeah, I haven't. I also uh, dabbled in martial arts for a bunch of years. So, Which yeah. ones did you do? I, I took karate for a bunch of years, and then I got into jujitsu, and I did a little mixed martial arts. I was teaching a couple of guys that were, in recent years, they were getting into MMA, and, and their stand-up was bad, and I still have the boxing skills I could teach and I just like to spar so I would teach them they would teach me you know beautiful well you talked about um the entertainment versus the real world it's funny I, I worked in Japan doing stunts I opened Universal Studios in Japan um Rebecca Vickers and Chris Nolte were both there two of your stunt people I think Chris is the yeah. coordinator now I yeah. believe um yeah. but it was interesting I got like we left Japan I became a firefighter and still did stunts on the side. And what Jimmy was going through, I can totally relate because I would come off shift having seen God knows what, and then maybe go straight to a green room somewhere of, of a stunt show, see someone queening out about their costume wasn't right, and you were torn. Because in your mind, you're like, well, what does that matter? Like right. people out there are dying. You're worrying about your damn buttons. I mean, for God's sake, pull yourself together. And so yeah. I, I can totally relate to what he probably felt when he first came back because I literally had that. And in, in one respect, in the fire service, excuse me, in the entertainment world, some people, they themselves are the most important person on the planet. And I don't mean that in a mean way, but the, the, the whole goal is to be the center of the stage. You know, the, the, the lead actor, for example, in the fire service, in the military, you're putting everyone else ahead of yourself. So it's an interesting paradox when you got one foot in both careers and seeing, and it's not black and white, as you said, and we do need entertainment, they're right, but sometimes it's hard when you've come from one real gritty world and then you yeah. go into that make-believe world and there's a disconnect. Uh, absolutely agree. All right. Well, then one of the last closing questions, is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's great, great people in uh, Chicago. Uh, uh, two people that jump to mind right away would be uh, Jose Santiago, who I just mentioned. There's a uh, Vietnam Marine that worked his way up. Uh, he started in the gangs in, in uh, he was a gang member of the Latin Kings as a kid, you know, fighting in the streets, went away to the Marines, became a man. 
came to the Chicago Fire Department, worked his way up to commissioner. It's a wonderful story. Uh, Bobby Hoff, one of our highest decorated uh, best men that I know in my life, also come through my squad company, rose up to become our fire commissioner. Bobby started as a young boy. He lost his father, who was a Chicago fire chief in a building collapse uh, as a child. And uh, and uh, he's just, uh, just a wonderful guy. He, he When he retired from Chicago, he became a the chief of department of a town, Carroll Stream, and still to this day, he teaches classes at uh, IFSI for University of Illinois. Uh, outside of Chicago, and uh, you have such a big catalog, I, I didn't see everybody. I've been listening to your podcast because I love them. Uh, John Salka, who I talked about his book. John is an amazing man, an author, teacher, educator, mentor, uh, uh, uh retired chief from New York, and uh, Rick Lasky, who I also mentioned, Rick's book, another wonderful educator, author, role model. And uh, lastly, I'd, I'd have to say uh, Bob, Bobby Halton, who's just an, an amazing uh, fire chief, who's now an editor of the biggest fire magazine in the world of fire engineering. He runs uh, uh, FDIC, which is the biggest fire instructor conference in the world. He's just influential in so many people's lives, and uh, uh, he saved people's lives physically, and now he's doing it through his education. So of that entire list, I would love to connect with all of them, but Bobby actually was on the show. It was probably about almost four years ago now, and it was Bobby interesting. Hall. Yes. Oh, really? Okay, because cool. you you are familiar with the, you know, the podcast I've listened to before, and, and you're aware of, the, kind of like the early life thing. What was funny yeah. is at first when we had our conversation, he was like side, you know, taken by surprise by the opening questions and got a little defensive. And then we ended up having this great conversation and I saw him, um, I forget which conference it was, but we talked for a while after and he said, yeah, I thought you were trying to like trick me. I thought this was TMZ. I'm like, no, 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 this is, this is the way I always do them. So it's a kind yeah, of fun, funny. funny story. He'd never really been asked those questions before. So it took him aback initially. Yeah. Oh, your 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 interviews are great. Uh, you got me saying things today that I've never discussed or never in that fashion before, and that's uh, uh, everything was done heartfelt and uh, just powerful interviews. You, I I believe you're uh, making the world a better place, James. Well, I mean, thank you. We're just part of the same tapestry. I think that's it. As as you know, there's nothing more motivating than a firefighter's funeral to to want to make change. You know, force change. I've got one more question before we, we make sure everyone knows where to find you. You've been through this amazing journey. Um, here you are now in 2022. You know, you're, you're still connected with the fire service. You're doing the TV stuff. What do you do to decompress now? If it's changed at all from when you were a, a, a young boxer? Yeah. You know what? I still do a boxer's workout. It's calisthenics and bags. And, uh, that's a big decompression, uh, because of, uh, Age in a sore back, I uh, I incorporate a lot of yoga into it, and I meditate. I meditate every day. Uh, when I drive to work in the morning, I drive with, with no uh, radio on, and I can think. And uh, sometimes I don't even remember the drive, but uh, uh, but I, I cover a lot of uh, things. It, it, it helps you through pain and uh reminds you of what's important in life 
Absolutely. Well, for people listening, you touched on writing books. Obviously, you have the TV show and then, you know, looking forward, hopefully another film. Where are the best places to find you online and, and your work? Yeah, well, I, I teach a lot of classes, but I've cut back on that. So I, I, I don't I don't market myself for that. But uh, but I'm, I'm always welcome, uh, welcome uh, calls and questions or or an offer to teach a class, which, uh, you know, I, I'll never uh just ignore you. I, I would talk to you, but uh, they can reach me on Facebook and it's Steve Chikorotis, common spelling on Chikorotis, uh, C-H-I-K-E-R-O-T-I-S. Uh, uh, an email address that I use that uh, for questions like that and people to reach out is the old AOL account that I keep and it's uh, Mr. Chick at AOL, M-R-C-H-I-K at AOL.com. People can reach me there. Uh, and if you instant message me or or email me, I, I will always get back to you. And uh, I look forward to any uh, conversations with, you know, anybody that's, uh, whether they're going through a tough time and just need somebody to talk to or, or uh, want to tell me a funny story that happened in their life. And then uh, teaching classes, I, I have uh, not a lot coming up. I, I don't think I have... Right now, because we got the holidays coming, the next thing I'll be at will be FDIC, which is again that big conference in Indianapolis every year. This year, it's the last week in April, and I, I'll be teaching a couple classes there. and And this year, uh, it really humbles me to even say it. I'm getting a lifetime achievement award, which is amazing because all of my heroes are past recipients. Uh, a lot of them not here anymore. It's called the Tom Brennan. Lifetime Achievement Award. Tom Brennan was a friend of mine and uh, uh, passed away. Uh, and uh, Ray Downey, the uh, chief of operations for uh, New York, died on 9-11, was also a friend of mine. Uh, Vinnie Dunn, uh, amazing guy, chief from New York. Alan Brunacini, chief from Phoenix, uh, Arizona, who also passed on, another friend of mine. All of these people I would see at conference and held up on a pedestal and would pick their brain and and they were uh, you know fellow instructors and whether they knew it or not they were also mentors to me. Uh, God, uh, you know Leo Staple and the Commissioner of Boston was big in my life. He's a past recipient. John Norman, Jerry Tracy, uh, the guys I just talked about, Rick Lasky and John Salka were previous. Uh, Mike Dugan, Bill Gustin. Billy Goldfeder, who I know was on your show, I listened to Billy's past recipients of this award. So even to be named on the same award, it just means uh, the world to me. And uh, I'm humbled, but uh, excited about it. And uh, Well, well-deserved. Another one, you just mentioned Mike Dugan. He was on the show too. Another amazing human. What, what a great man. Yeah. Absolutely. Another friend. Well, I just want to say thank you. I mean... We could have one level of conversation. We could talk fire stuff. And again, 14 years, I'm always kind of, you know, imposter syndrome-esque when it comes to that even. But that would be an enthralling conversation. But where you have been, and again, I think it really underlines that courageous vulnerability, whether it was your early life, whether it was, you know, some of the losses in your career and, and even the recent events, losing your son. I'm honored that you trust me to tell the story and be the kind of vehicle to to share some of these stories but uh you know you are 
a leader in the fire service and I'm honored that you, you know, took two and a half hours. Well, actually, I take that back, almost three hours despite our pee break <laughs> to, uh, to share your story today. So I just want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. James, that means a lot. Uh, I, uh, like I said, I enjoy your work and I'm honored to be uh, talking to you today, pal. And I, I look forward to meeting you in person. 